said it couldn't be done, or maybe it was that it shouldn't be done, but uh, here we are with the 51st episode of X-Lapsed, which puts us officially on the road to 100. I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but uh, hey, fingers crossed. Uh, This is Chris, by the way, same guy as always. Uh, Like I said, it's episode 51, and we've got us a giant-sized episode today because we are looking at... The uh, Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey plus Emma Frost, number one. And this had an April 2020 cover date. We're going to hop right into it because we got well, we got some stuff to talk about. It's called Into the Storm. Story and words, Jonathan Hickman. Story and art, Russell Dodderman or Dowderman. Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Beast, So White, Sobolski. Special thanks... To Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely? Huh, I wonder what that's all about. Cover price, $4.99. Went on sale February 26th, 2020. Okie doke. Well, uh, <laughs> this one might be a little, uh, a little difficult to say a whole lot about. Um, you know, I've joked a time or two or five or six about whatever episode we're doing being potentially the shortest ever. But, uh... If we just go by content here, uh, well, we might actually have that today. Uh, I'm trying to load this episode up with other things, but uh, as far as the cover-to-cover here, eh, it's uh, it's a little different. Now, uh, you might have noticed that I paid particular attention to the thank you and the credits to uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, and uh, how about we talk about that for a minute? Now, earlier this century, Morrison came on to X-Men Volume 2. It was renamed New X-Men and uh, pretty much turned the mutant world upside down for a minute. Uh, During his run, Marvel would have this weird itch to try enforcing a gimmick month onto their entire stable of books. Well, I mean, not those written by Kevin Smith, uh, because, I mean, you'll never know which month he's actually going to finish an issue, and also, Casada ain't going to worry about inconveniencing his superstar pal. Uh, The Ultimate books were left out of this uh, little mandate as well, probably as to not risk alienating actual new readers with a, uh, well, with a silly-ass gimmick. Um, Now, to properly introduce this gimmick, many of our minds might immediately go back to G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero number 21, that had a March 1984 cover date. It's called Silent Interlude, and it's an issue that featured, well, silence. No word balloons, no sound effects, no narration. And uh, this was such a weird thing that there was a long-standing rumor that this silent issue wasn't the original intention for the issue, and just that Marvel and Larry Hama simply ran out of time and decided to make the best out of a bad situation. And this has since been debunked by Larry Hama. 
In an interview with Dwight John D- John Zimmerman for David Anthony Kraft's Comics Interview, issue 37, Hamill would say the following. He said, I wanted to see if I could do a story that was real, a complete story, beginning, middle, end, conflict, characterization, action, solid resolution, without balloons or captions or sound effects. And that's exactly what he did. From here, we could jump, well, many years ahead, about a quarter century ahead, uh, to the turn of the century, where an issue of Deadpool paid homage to that classic G.I. Joe story. This is Deadpool number 42, July 2000, cover date, Silent but Deadly Interlude, by uh, Handmaster Glenn Hurdling and Jim Calafiore, and this was similarly without words. And the cover logo, the Deadpool logo, even paid tribute to the G.I. Joe logo and read, Deadpool, a real American zero. It was pretty well received as a novelty and a cute nod to a beloved, if not perhaps a hair overrated, Joe story. We jump ahead again to late 2001, early 2002, and uh, there'd been a seat change at the top of Marvel. Bob Harris was given the boot, and he was replaced by the exciting tandem of Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada. And I say exciting with zero sarcasm intended. This was actually a very exciting time to be a Marvel fan, at least for me. I was very, very psyched about what they were going to bring to the table, and uh, very seldom did they disappoint. On that note, let's talk about uh, this gimmick, huh? Uh, Now, Marvel, never leaving well enough alone, decided to run something they called Nuff Said Month, which, as the name might imply, means that all of Marvel's book, with a few of those exceptions, had to run without words. And, I mean, if you weren't there for it, it probably sounds like a fun idea. Probably a neat experiment. But, oof, in practice... That was a less-than-ideal month to be following your favorite Marvel titles. Uh, I'm going to quote you something from Preview's catalog, Volume 11, Number 10, October 2001 cover date. A catalog that I damn near destroyed a closet trying to dig out, because I am a horrible pack rat and I don't throw anything out, and I, I keep things just for such an occasion as this. I probably haven't had to pull this book for 20 years now, and uh, I only held on to it for this day. So we're going to talk about the Nuff Said uh, little experiment here. Now, the previews mag says, They say a picture's worth a thousand words. They say it's deeds, not words, that count. Well, this December, they won't be saying anything, because for the month of December, we've challenged our writers and artists to tell stories using visuals only. What? You think that's easy? That's only half the work? Try telling that to the scribes who had to come up with a story that couldn't use dialogue or captions to explain and further the plot. Try telling that to the pencilers who had to make sure that their storytelling was so clear that everyone could just look at the art and understand exactly what was happening. Both groups will tell you that this was probably more difficult than constructing a normal issue. And to give you insight into the creative process, each issue will be bumped up to 40 pages at no extra cost and will feature the plot that each artist had to draw. This is something very cool that gives us a chance to show off our craft, Joe Casada said. We're looking at these issues as a celebration of the art form of sequential storytelling. We're branching out and showing people the beauty of what it is we do with comics, that we don't necessarily always need words. I see this as a challenge to our artists to really get down to the craft, Joe added. It's even more of a challenge to the writers who have to think in that visual manner. But I know our guys are more than up to the challenge. So get ready to witness some amazing art, which will make you exclaim... 
Nuff said. So you might be wondering which books had to play along with this uh, little mandate here, and I'll give you a list of them. We're not going to go into depth here. Maybe I'll do another, like a weird, a weird comics history sort of a show later on to uh, maybe go a little bit deeper into these, uh, into what worked and what didn't with these uh, these stories we're going to discuss right now, or I'm going to list anyway. Exiles number seven by Judd Winnick and Mike McCone. Uncanny X-Men number 401 by Joe Casey and Ron Gawney, which uh, was uh, the one that they had to change the last minute to take Banshee out of his SS costume. Cable number 100 by David Tishman and Igor Cordy, and this was a 16-page backup story, not the entire issue. Extreme X-Men number 8 by Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocca. Deadpool Funeral for a Freak number 1 by Frank Thierry and Jim Calafiore. And uh, this was a... uh, a little miniseries they ran inside the main Deadpool uh, volume, and uh, it was a riff on, uh, well, Funeral for a Friend, as, a, as might be obvious. Wolverine number 171 by Frank Thierry and Sean Chen. And I'm forgetting how many of these books Frank Thierry got. I wonder, uh, I wonder if he had any friends in high places. Um, X-Force number 123 by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. Spider-Girl number 41 by Tom DeFalco and Pat Oleaf. Amazing Spider-Man number 38 by J. Michael Straczynski and John Romita Jr. Peter Parker Spider-Man number 38 by Paul Jenkins and Mark Buckingham. Electra number 6 by Brian Michael Bendis and Chuck Austin. Punisher number 7 by Steve Dillon and Jimmy Palmiotti. Daredevil number 28 by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev. Uh, Fantastic Four number 50 by Carlos Pacheco, Raphael Martin, and Tom Grummet. And this is just the opening story of that extra size issue. Thor, number 44, by Dan Jurgens and Stuart Eminent. Black Panther, number 39, by Christopher Priest and Sal Valuto. Defenders, number 12, by Kurt Busiek, Eric Lawson, and Ivan Reese. Iron Man, number 49, by Frank Thierry and Chris Batista. Captain America, number 50, by Dan Jurgens, and this is the opening bit to that exercise story, and it's a, basically a Captain America retrospective. Almost a cheat. Uh, Captain Marvel number 26 by Peter David and Leonard Kirk, and this is the Janice Vell Captain Marvel. Thunderbolts number 49 by Fabian Niciesa and Mark Bagley. Avengers number 49 by Kurt Busiek and Kieran Doyer. And New X-Men number 121 by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. And this story was called Silence, Psychic Rescue in Progress. And the solicit from that very same previews catalog, you see these... These are the reasons I hold on to garbage. So uh, maybe if the wife is listening, she can, uh, she'll know that everything I do, I do for a reason. Now the solicit says, Professor X lies in a coma on the edge of death. His powerful mutant brain has retreated into itself. In one last-ditch attempt to free him from this state, Jean Grey and Emma Frost telepathically journey into the realm of Xavier's mind. And the horrors they discover can truly not be described. Can the X-Men's founder be saved, or will Jean and Emma be consumed by his nightmares? Find out in silence. Psychic rescue in progress. So yeah, Jean and Emma futzing around in someone's mind, huh? Well, sounds so nice, why not do it twice? The solicit for the book we're about to discuss, Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey plus Emma Frost, says... The first of five essential X-Tales specially designed to showcase some of Marvel's best artists. First up, Russell Dowderman, superstar artist of Thor and War of the Realms. When Storm is in danger, it's going to take two of the most powerful telepaths on Earth working together to make things right. Jean Grey and Emma Frost together again for the good of Krakoa. So, we set the table. 
How about we get into it? We start this issue with our roll call. Jean Grey, Emma Frost, Storm, Wolverine, Cyclops, then two pages of credits. Now our story opens with a pair of young mutants flying around the shores of Krakoa. One of them spots something rather troubling, and it's Storm, and she's in a really bad way. Looks like she's KO'd and bleeding from the head. Next stop, I'm assuming it's the Healing Gardens. Above the entrance in Krakoan, it reads, Silence, Psychic Rescue in Progress. Just in case we weren't completely sure where this was heading. Emma and Jean prepare to do the thing, leaving Wolverine and Cyclops waiting for them by the doorway. After a swig from her flask, Emma's ready for some psychic action. And together, she and Jean get up close and personal with the KO'd Aurora. Now, upon entering her mind, they find themselves stood on like a veld of sort of, of sorts, you know, uh, before a large umbrella tree. In the sky above hovers Storm's illuminated headdress. The ground begins to shake a bit or something. Jean and Emma head down a valley where they find a pair of big cats with their necks contorted to sort of kind of give the imagery of a yin-yang, kind of. Uh, one of these big cats has a, like a giant mane of white hair around its, you know, head and neck. The cats look our ladies up and down and wonder if they're to be considered friends. Jean manifests an image of she and Storm in an embrace, and the maned cat smiles broadly. Emma manifests an image of she and Storm in, uh, well, a less friendly sort of confrontation, and the cats don't dig that one bit. And so, suddenly, Emma finds herself overcome by giant serpents. A battle ensues for a couple of pages until Jean is able to intervene and eliminate the threat. The ladies then climb atop an elephant, who uh, steals a page from Quinan's playbook and sprouts itself a set of butterfly wings. Now the elephant flies them back in the direction of, the un- of that giant umbrella tree, and the tree explodes into light. In the skies above, Storm's headdress remains, and Storm's face appears below it as though she's wearing it. Uh, the winds begin to pick up, obliterating the tree, and Emma and Jean are, Jean are still standing. Next, we know they're climbing up a spiral staircase, and they're surrounded by what uh, Reggie and I used to call Madness Paisleys back when we were discussing uh, Shade the Changing Girl. If anybody's, you know, been with me since then, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the higher they climb, the more in disrepair these stairs become. They crumble, and it would appear that Jean and Emma begin to lose their concentration and their connection. And so they put their heads together, and they're able to reassemble the stairway out of the rubble. Reaching the top... And now they're back on a plane. Storm's headdress is still hovering, and on the ground is a giant gold ball, or egg. It cracks and hatches, revealing, I don't know, like a spillage of a honey-like fluid? And the honey, you know, it sort of forms words. It comes into the the air in front of them, and one of the words is metal, with a question mark. The other one is machine, with a question mark. Then, a flower appears in the giant golden puddle. Jean and Emma look at each other all incredulous-like, before the latter shrugs her shoulders and gives the flower a big old tug. Jean decides to help out, and, uh, oh boy, does this little flower have a massive root system. Finally, they pull the flower enough to create a sort of ring in this honey, from which Storm emerges. Now, Jean is overjoyed, and she rushes over to her friend. She places her hand on Aurora's face and is shocked when Storm's skin actually comes back with her hand when she removes it. And this reveals, like, a metallic skull. Uh, Storm's kind of looking like a Terminator or something here. And along her metal skeletal forehead is a countdown timer that reads 29 days, 23 months, 55 minutes, and 46 seconds. Lightning crashes and forms the words, Save Me. 
Gene and Emma embrace Storm, and everything goes to white. Now back outside, Wolverine and Cyclops anxiously await the news. The silence light goes off, and Emma and Jean emerge from the gardens. Jean tells the fellas that the children of the vault remember them, and have given Storm a machine virus which will kill her within 30 days. She closes out with a We Ought to Talk, which is another callback to the Morrison and Quitely inspiration. And that is Giant Size X-Men, colon, Jean Grey, plus Emma Frost, number one. Uh, next episode, we will be discussing Marauders number seven, but first, let's try and parse this thing out. So this is uh, basically everything we loved about the Morrison issue with none of the seminal fluid, because uh, there was a lot of that in there. Um, it's, I mean, let's let's be real here. It's hard to make a mostly silent issue work, right? On that, I, I think we could probably all agree. Um, there are questions of how capable an artist is when it comes to having to shoulder the responsibility of telling the entire story, because every panel needs to say something, while actually not saying something, right? Uh, it's not something I'd be able to do. I, I probably wouldn't even know where to start. And so, like, retreading on the Morrison issue is probably the best way to go about it if this had to be a thing that had to happen. Um, I guess this is the best way to do it. Uh, Now, even after reading, (laughs) for lack of a better term, this issue several times over, I I mean, despite the fact that it's a giant size, it doesn't take all that long to flip through. (laughs) I'm still not 100% sure what we just saw. I mean, we know the resolution, and the revelation, and uh, everything that got us there was just, like, esoteric enough for us to just kind of shrug it off. You know what I'm saying, I I would assume. It's just, I don't want to use the weird for weird's sake, because that's a a cop-out. But, I mean, it was very esoteric. Kind of boilerplate for... uh, Astral plane-ish stuff You know, the stairway, spiral stairways to nothing And, you know, we've seen this stuff before But, uh I guess this is, it feels like kind of a case of like If you can't dazzle them with brilliance You baffle them with BS You know, <laughs> the the astral plane Or wherever it was that this story actually takes place Is fair game for a weird story And, and an experimental story type As uh, as this So, I guess in that regard it was It was a success Yeah, maybe I enjoyed it, for the most part. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Morrison run, and it's neat seeing it revisited. Um, especially when we consider the amount of effort Marvel and Joe Quesada personally put into burying it as soon as Grant walked back across the street to DC Comics back in the mid-2000s. Uh, that said, however, you know me. I worry about things that really don't matter, and uh, things that have absolutely nothing to do with creative. So here... I sit uh, with a mostly wordless book in my lap. And it's one that comes with a $5 cover price. Now, I didn't pay 5 bucks for this. I ordered it from DCBS, so I snagged it for under fi- under 3 bucks. I couldn't imagine plopping a $5 bill on the counter to get this. Uh, getting it home, sitting with it for the under 5 minutes it takes to flip through, and then feeling satisfied. I, I can't imagine that. Um... I mean, you can kind of lampshade this due to the fact that it is an homage, right? Um, But, like, hasn't Marvel spent the better part of the last decade telling the sort of fan who would understand the callback that that these books aren't being written for them anymore, right? It's like you've been driving the people who would get this reference away, 
and here we are with the reference. It's like one of those, you know, cake, eat it, have it. <laughs> what are you going to do situations? Um, let me try to put a pin in that. We'll get out of the weeds and let's talk about the story. Starting with the question, when in the hell does this story happen? Is this storm infected by the children of the vault plot only going to occur in these five giant size specials? If that is the case, well, uh, that's a pretty big ask from the readership, isn't it? I mean, that's not only a $25 story, but it's one that's like purposely on the fringes of all the Dawn of X stuff that's going on, right? It That sort of thing makes it feel, to me, like it's inconsequential. It could easily be ignored. I could be wrong, you know, but it feels like a... Hey, if you're buying the Xbox, you might as well buy this too. You don't have to, but you could. Whereas if this was a story that was meant to have uh, big ramifications, it would probably be happening in X-Men. I don't know. Plus, if I'm remembering right, though given the year we've just had happen to us, uh, I might be remembering wrong, I think these giant-sized releases were somewhat sporadic. No? I mean, like a couple of months would pass in between them? Uh, I could be misremembering. Um, I just don't feel like these were regular releases. I feel like... I, I get my books once a month, and I feel like there were like several months where I didn't get one of these. But I could be wrong. I, this has been a hell of a year, so they, these could have been monthly for all I know. <laughs> I could have checked. I probably should have checked, but I didn't. Uh, now, if I'm able to block out the question of when this was, it's an okay little ditty, right? I mean, it's not bad. Again, I struggle with the fact that it has a hefty price tag. That's just the cost of doing business anymore. Um, Basically, you know, comics, Marvel, and DC, if it's not a normal, everyday issue, it's going to be at least five bucks. And that sucks, but that's hardly the fault of this book in particular. Uh, The fact that this Storm story is happening outside the main books makes it feel disposable. And uh, it lowers the already tiny stakes. I mean, let's remember where we are, right? Let's remember what... What the, the playing field, you know, gives us in, in Dawn of X here. Worst case scenario, Storm dies in 30 days. Then 30 minutes later, she pops out of an egg. So not a whole lot of urgency there, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you can hinge an entire story on this when it really it doesn't seem to matter all that much. Um, we can go through five giant size issues, have Storm still die... Or we can go through these five giant size issues and then have Storm die in an issue of Marauders that has nothing to do with this, and then be brought back. She could be brought back twice by the time this ends. So it's, I don't know, it's hard for me to, it's really hard for me to invest, is what I'm trying to say. Overall, I mean, it's said in the solicit that this was going to be a showcase for the artist, and if we judge this book only by that metric, it was a tremendous uh, success. Uh, Dodeman delivers here big time. I thought uh, the art here was just really, really special. Really good stuff. Um, It's just kind of unfortunate that the story it's attached to kind of feels like a throwaway. Um, I I don't know that I'd advise anyone to pay full price for this. I hate to say that because uh, it's kind of a dick thing to say, but I I, I don't know that I could tell someone, yeah, this is worth your $5. It's pretty. (laughs) It's pretty, and... uh, if you are a longtime X fan, you know, if you if you were here for the Morrison run, if you were here for Nuff Said, it might give you some warm fuzzies, or maybe some Morrison flavored warm fuzzies, but 
I think that's probably all I got to say about this issue. Uh, but before I let you go, um, we do have a moderate-sized mailbag today, so let's hop right into that. And we're going to start with Damien, and he's discussing X-Men Fantastic Four number 3. He says, I think I might have enjoyed this issue more than you did. A lot of this is probably down to any Speed Force parallels being lost on me. For financial reasons, I had to greatly reduce my comics reading when I went to university in 1992, so I only read the first six issues of Mark Mark Wade's run and missed the introduction of the Speed Force. By the time I tried Flash again, it was being written by Jeff Johns and felt so changed that I've never gone back to the Flash. And uh, yeah, the Flash has been a favorite of mine for many years now. Um, I've actually got a Chris's on Infinite Earths episode in the works right now to discuss the story where I became... Totally divested in the character of Wally West. Um, that one's uh, it's going to be a it might be a long episode. Um, it's in it's basically all the scripted parts are scripted. Uh, the non-scripted part is I come up with that on that with that on the fly anyway. So it's it's about ready to go. I just got to actually sit down and do it. Uh, personally, I loved both the uh, Wade and Johns runs, although they were they were very different. Uh, it wasn't until they brought Wally back post-rebirth that it seemed as though DC were making a point of totally and utterly destroying the character while rubbing it in the face of all the Wally fans. Um, I might be projecting, but uh, with everything they've done to Wally since 2016, I don't think I am. Uh, Wally West is a character who I think was better left in limbo, and that's all I'll say about that for now. If you want to hear more of my hot takes on The Flash, Wally West... Uh, Keep an eye out for that Chris's on Infinite Earths episode uh, coming coming soon to a uh, to a feed near you. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I quite like the God Particle idea as it links to the old official handbook of the Marvel Universe. They always used to try to explain how powers work and often said their energies come from other dimensions. The one I see referenced most often is Cyclops. They said his eyes were a portal to the dimension of pure force. It's ludicrous, but it's so memorable that it sticks with you. And yeah, I get that. I remember the, uh, I don't remember exactly what they called it in the in the Ohatmus, uh, if it was God Particles or just uh, other dimensional powers. I remember that being a sort of a hot-button issue back on the Usenet back in the 90s. Um, sort of a bone of contention with a lot of people. Heck, you know, maybe Hickman was one of the people I was arguing with back in the long ago. <laughs> Very well could be. I... I didn't much care for the idea then. I felt like it made the characters less special, even though they do have this ability to tap into, you know, other dimensional energy. I don't know. I like I like it to be a little bit more cut and dry than that. I didn't like it then. I still kind of don't like it now. Um, and again, that might be that might have to do with the speed force and the fatigue I have over it. Um, I feel like the speed force makes the flash less less special. Because you don't need to have you don't need to have the power so much. You just need to be able to access it. And we're in a DC universe right now where there's got to be 500 speedsters running around. It's it's ridiculous. Every every issue of the Flash, he's fighting an evil speedster over and over and over again. If it's not the Rogues, it's an evil speedster. It's a bit much, and uh, that might be where my my fatigue stems from. Uh, Damien continues. Of course, the ending of the original series, Fantastic Four vs. X-Men, revealed that Doom was deliberately setting the X-Men against the Fantastic Four, so I'm expecting that kind of revelation in the final issue. 
It wouldn't surprise me if the block on Franklin's power ends up being generated by Doom. That made me wonder. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if that codex that Reed created to, you know, block, you know, uh, Franklin's powers, I wonder if that's responsible for his power depletion or in some sort of way. And I also wonder if that was supposed to be made, like, completely obvious during the epilogue and I was just too dense to get it. It's a very good possibility. It's a, that is one of my trademarks. Uh, Damien continues. As for Wolverine killing the person dressed as a Doombot, I think we're going to discover that he is brainwashing the mutants into Doombots. This would explain why the people who asked for help were against the X-Men. And if the Doombots are mutants, they could be resurrected on Krakoa. I'm looking forward to finding out when I read the next issue. And that's something I was wondering, and I I might have mentioned it uh, last episode. Does Xavier have backups for them? Yeah, I I can't remember, because uh, we've been reading a lot of stuff. Does Xavier have backups for every single mutant in the universe, or just those on Krakoa or those he knows? Um, it might be completely apparent, and it might be perfectly clearly explained, and I just don't remember. So that's where I was wondering. I mean, plus the fact that here we are just killing people again, and not having uh, not having a whole lot of regret over it. Uh, we didn't even get Wolverine dealing with the, the fact that he just killed somebody. Whether or not they could be brought back or not, it's kind of immaterial. He, but he took a life, and we don't get any sort of uh, we don't get any kind of moment to digest that. And uh, I mean, that's that's the field we're playing on now. I mean, the ball has landed right there. Uh, Damien continues. I was saddened that my revelation about Zarsky inspiring the series and our favorite scene in Hawks number one seemed to knock the wind out of your sails. I think it's a positive. We know that Hickman tends toward big arcs with overarching storylines that stretch for years and years, and he clearly has a plan in place. He knows what he wants to do, but I think it's great to see that he's reacting to and incorporating ideas from other writers. He came up with the villainous old ladies by himself, but in collaboration with Zarsky, he set up a fascinating status quo between the X-Men and Fantastic Four. On that basis, I'd rather see him collaborating than working solo. And, uh... Now, I get where you're coming from. I totally do, but I feel like, you know, you know me. I I get lost in the scenery. I get lost in uh, wondering how, or knowing how the sausage is made. Um, I, I feel like a little bit of the magic was gone here. I feel like knowing that this is, this was something of an afterthought uh, to the greater Dawn of X effort, I don't know, kind of cheapens it for me. Um... Like, if Zosky never mentioned this, Hickman wouldn't have brought it up himself, right? It wasn't part of Hickman's original X-Men manifesto, to swipe another bit from Grant Morrison's run, you know, the manifesto. This wasn't part of it, you know? Um, and, again, I get lost in details and the weeds, so it's hard for me to now accept this as, like, an integral part of the overarching Hickman story. To me, it's just something that Zarsky did. That I suppose I'll eventually see if it ever comes back up again. I, I haven't read further, so for all I know, Franklin's leading a team now. I just don't think he is. Uh, and I agree that this is far better than the Golden Girls issue, but at the end of the day, Hickman has plans for the Golden Girls, where, again, I'm not certain he has any plans or is even allowed to have plans for Franklin. You know, um, I don't know. It's 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 weird. Uh, Damien continues, You also say you wish we could go back to the shooter years where continuity was cohesive and sacros- sacrosanct. Easy for me to say. 
There's actually a story featuring the same characters that denies that. In Uncanny 145 to 147, there's a story where Doctor Doom and Arcade team up to kidnap the X-Men. The story only works with it being the real Doom because you see his thoughts about Storm, which couldn't happen with a Doombot. John Byrne had left the, had just left the X-Men just before this storyline, and his first issue of Fantastic Four came out the same month as the end of the X-Men story. As soon as possible, Byrne revealed that it was a Doombot in the X-Men story solely as a dig at Chris Claremont. It's probably unsurprising that the 1987 Fantastic Four X-Men series started after Byrne went to DC. And yeah, Byrne's kind of a goon, isn't he? <laughs> I remember, I remember that scene in particular. I think, like, didn't Arcade like actually strike a match on Doom's armor or something? I remember people kind of losing their minds over that. Uh, Byrne was so quick to try and put another creator in their place that he didn't even care whether or not he was right or wrong. <laughs> Such a goon. Oh man. Uh, Damien wraps up with. There were other cases of writers changing continuity because they didn't like another writer. Bill Mantlo on The Hulk wrote out Doug Mensch's run. I think sometimes we romanticize older comics, but people were frequently changing things for reasons good and bad, and most of the strong continuity was only within smaller groups of titles. And you're right. You're right. Um, I romanticize a lot of things about the past, and uh, I suppose comics continuity is is one of those things. I just feel like uh, maybe Marvel had a better sense of humor about it back then. Like, they'd realize what they were doing. And again, this is me projecting. Uh, I see editors today uh, more more interested in sharing pictures of their ice cream sundae that they got at the, uh, at the diner than actually making sure everything works. And if uh, you point that out to them, they call you a nerd or a geek or a loser. <laughs> and I don't get that. Um, but yeah, uh, I think back then it would be... Uh, Eh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am romanticizing it. But, you know, it's funny. Keeping it with the Hulk for a minute, uh, Peter David sort of did the same thing to the Bruce Jones run. I don't think there were any... I don't think there was any sort of uh, bad blood between the two. But, uh, but yeah, he pretty much canceled out the whole Bruce Jones run when he made his, you know, short 21st century stint return to the book. I love Peter David, and uh, and I'm not sure how much editorial direction he was under here, but... I really also enjoyed that bizarre fugitive-style run that Bruce Jones was doing. It was very, very different for the Hulk, and uh, for the most part, pretty fun. Pretty fun. Um, at least the first half of it. But uh, that's uh, that's Damien's message. Uh, thank you so much for writing in and, uh, and giving all your thoughts on this uh, big Fantastic Four miniseries. Thank you so much. Uh, next, I got a letter from Jesse DeJong. He says, Good afternoon, Chris. You have no idea how pleased I am that you're back and doing X-Lapsed. For a while there, I was afraid you were going to leave podcasting because you didn't seem to enjoy it anymore. You sound like you're having the time of your life now, and I'm glad you found that spark again. And thank you. Thank you so much. It's it's true. Uh, I was uh, really close to shutting this down. Um, folks who listened to episode 50 uh, will have heard that story. Um, and... Uh, I don't want to repeat it here. If uh, if anybody wants to hear it or 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 not, I mean it's there. It's the first half hour of episode fifty. Um, but yeah, I mean, suffice it to say, it's been a really really rough year, both in the world and also for this humble and seldom visited little corner of the internet. Uh, the spark was gone, um, and uh, X Lapse has really done a lot to to you know put a put a Put a spring in my step. I'm trying to think of a non-cliche way of saying that, but I guess, you know, 
That's as good as it's going to get. Jesse continues, You've mentioned Generation X a few times since you started X-Lapse, and it really makes me miss that book. Generation X was the first comic I started collecting issue by issue back in the autumn of 1994. Issue number one is my favorite comic of all time, and it's because of this book that I found you and Reggie. It was the Cosmic Treadmill episode of Generation X number one that pulled me in all those years ago. And that's that's so awesome. Um, that was a... Boy, what episode? It was like 31, maybe? It was a pretty early in the run. It was a long time back. And it's a funny story, because that episode of the treadmill sort of came about by accident. Um... Reggie and I were still relatively new to being on our own, you know, and uh, we were kind of afraid that we'd become pigeonholed as a DC Comics podcast, you know, since we did spin out of a DC-centric program, and as such, we only covered DC-centric books, and it, it didn't help that even when we were not part of the Weird Science show, even when we were on our own, more often than not, we were still discussing DC books, um, which really didn't help help the cause of trying to be like an all-encompassing sort of a program. And we saw, we decided to remedy that, to try to break the trend. Uh, we were going to have an event, and uh, we called it Marvel March, and it was for the month of March 2017. And it was four weeks of Marvel only. And uh, we discussed uh, Defenders number one, I believe. We discussed uh, Incredible Hulk 181. Um... I don't remember the other book we discussed, but uh, but then we also, our friend Andrew in Belfast requested that we look at uh, Generation X number one. And Generation X is definitely a favorite of mine as well. Um, it hit just the right time. I, I was 14 years old reading a comic about other kids my age, you know, and it felt cool. You know, it didn't feel dated like so many other young hero titles can feel. It felt very now, um, and it also felt a lot like Autumn, which Chris Bocciolo can draw the hell out of, which <laughs> always makes me happy. Um, I mean, the fall of uh, 1994, I was still living on Long Island, and uh, we still had we still had northeastern autumns, so, you know, golden leaves on the ground and a uh, cool breeze in the air. It was very... When I read an issue of Generation X, it felt like home, and it... Uh, and it always it it always will, um, and that actually brings me to the only problem that I have with Generation X. I, I think I associate it like so hard with that time in my life that it's almost become intrinsically linked to my youth. You know, it's almost hard to revisit it because uh, I don't know. It makes me like almost too nostalgic. You know, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. It might. It might not. Um, but when I read Generation X, it it's, I don't know, it's like a very, it's an emotional event, you know? It just feels, it reminds me of a very special time in my life, and uh, I almost get I almost get lost in the nostalgia rather than getting anything out of the story. Um, back to uh, Jesse, he says, I spent an entire summer once going through and placing all the Generation X appearances in a workable chronological order of about 140 appearances in their own book and others. That's how much I love that book, and that sounds awesome. I'd love to see it. And I wonder, did you uh, did you fit in the Gen, Gen 13 crossovers? Did you fit... What other, what other things did they do? The Underground, the Generation X Underground, that, uh, that there is an episode on this channel about. 
I don't know if you if you fit that one in there. I don't even know if you can fit that one in there. <laughs> that one seems very very weird. Um, there's also the yes jubilee. There is a Santa Claus, I think. So I wonder where you fit those in there. I'll have to take a look at that if uh, if you'll if you'll let me. Um, Jesse continues. Now a complaint. Marvel has never had a reunion title or even a subplot for the students of Generation X. The closest they ever came was in the unreadable and horribly illustrated Generation X Volume 2. For an issue or two, Husk, Jubilee, and Chamber faced down against Emplate. Most of the focus was on the new unlikable cast and very little on the four originals. That is all we've gotten in over 20 years since the series ended. How many times has New Mutants, Excalibur, the giant-sized team, or even Alpha Flight been reunited? With the constant love I hear of creators adoring this book, why has there not been a reunion? And you're right. You're right. Um, I tell you what, it absolutely broke my heart when I dumped Generation X Volume 2. Uh, for the few months that it, list- that it lasted, I-, I couldn't believe I was living in a world where there was a Generation, book- Generation X book on the stands and I wasn't buying it. <laughs> um, it's actually one of the leading factors in my walking away from all things X back in 2016. I was so disappointed by it. Um, ugh. Not great. Um, And you're totally right about the other teams getting reunion after reunion. Um, And yet, no proper Generation X team up. I mean, just give us a one-off issue of the current volume of New Mutants and let the Gen X kids go out for burgers or something, right? I mean, they had time to send us to the farm for three issues. They they ought to have time for something like this. Uh, Jesse continues. I've enjoyed having Chamber and Mondo and New Mutants, my favorite title in this reboot, Jubilee and Excalibur, Husk and Fallen Angels, the worst book in the new reboot, and Sink and M showing up in the X-Men books. Skin has popped up in the background once or twice, but I want a Gen X title slash story with the original team. They're drawn in one of the habitats, so that what is what is the holdup, and who even lives in there, since everyone is in other teams. And that's true. Um, they do have their own little dome in the sextant, uh, hopefully at some point, maybe they let us see what's inside, right? <laughs> let us see who sleeps where, who's, who even lives there in the first place. It, God help me if it's I, boy. Um, <laughs> Jesse continues, I know you don't have any say in what books are produced, but I wanted to vent my frustration to another Generation X fan. I'm always there for that. I'm always a shoulder for that and a sounding board. Uh, Jesse continues, More on topic, here are my reviews of the X title so far. X-Men seems like each issue needs an end. It's like they're starting a story and forget to finish it every month. I think Krakoa is somehow manipulating its mutant population, and that's why they act kind of strange at times. Maybe Kitty, yes Kitty, not Kate, is somehow immune to its effects, so it doesn't want her there. And to bust out an old X-lapsed chestnut, I, I, I wonder if or when that... Other shoe was going to drop, pertaining to Krakoa's potential influence on the mutants. Um, that's something that a lot of folks have been wondering about, myself included. I, I think it's a way that we can kind of lampshade uh, weird behavior. It's like, well, I wonder how much of that behavior is them, and how much behavior is what Krakoa wants it to be, or what the professor wants it to be. It's There's definitely some manipulation. It's just a, a matter of who and what and when we find out. But as for X-Men... It really does feel like we're getting a lot of concepts being introduced without much in the way of follow-up. I'm guessing, I mean, gotta have faith, that there is, or there will be, a method to this madness. Uh, But as a month-to-month, or 
in my case, a week-to-week reading project, it's not very satisfying. Um, just we're getting these intros, and they're just left to hang there, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, Jesse continues, Excalibur reads to me like it's Excalibur. I always found that title to be a little uh, to be a bore, and you pronounce a perfectly. So we get another vote of confidence for Nick from Family Ties. That's a good thing. Uh, he continues, uh, New Mutants. I love the space adventure, and I feel like it's the strongest in its storytelling. And I agree. Uh, when when New Mutants is telling the non-farm story, it's hard for most of the books to compete, except for the one that we're about to discuss here. Jesse says, Marauders feels like it wants to do something great. I just want more answers to questions being brought up. At least you can follow the story in a trade format. And Marauders feels really good to me, too. Um, I often say my rankings often come down to Marauders and New Mutants. And number one is usually whichever one of those two I thought I most recently thought about. So if I'm thinking about New Mutants, that's number one. If I'm thinking about Marauders, that's number one. Um, <laughs> Jesse says... Fallen Angels was a push to get through. I would finish the book and not know what I just read. It was bad. And I tell you guys what, I feel almost justified in my dislike for this book. Um, uh, You know me by now. Anytime I have an opinion that might be considered in any way controversial, I'll just assume that I'm I'm wrong. You know, if, if in lieu of ruffling feathers, I just assume that I'm wrong. However... I've yet to hear from a single person who's actually said anything positive about Fallen Angels. I don't know if they just don't want to be drowned out, or if, uh, or if they just don't exist. <laughs> I don't know. I would definitely love to hear from someone who liked Fallen Angels. I won't, I won't poo-poo your opinion at all. Uh, I think there's something for everybody in every book. Um, if you do like Fallen Angels, please reach out and, uh, and and talk to me about it. I'd love to hear, uh, hear your thoughts. Uh, Jesse continues, X-Force. Is there an X-Force book? Because I don't remember it, and I know I have read it. <laughs> and yes, there is an X-Force book. Um, it's just outside the first issue. It's not terribly memorable. Um, outside of how... Uh, I, I mean, I make the joke about it being X-Forced... Because the dialogue is pretty cringy, but that's the only thing I can really remember about it, too. Uh, He continues, uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four was a fun read, and I'm enjoying hearing your reviews. Thank you. I I had a good time with it, despite some of my complaints about uh, what I perceived as being uneven uh, storytelling, uneven pacing. Um, Overall, though, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a, a, a nice... A nice break from the everyday, from the you know the routine that we have here on the show. It was nice to uh, it was nice to leave the ex office for a minute, you know, and still have a have a story that similar in flavor but maybe different in tone, you know. Uh, Jesse continues without giving things away. Wolverine, X Factor, and Hellions are pretty good. X Factor and Hellions are actually really good. X Men: Colon Empire was a waste that went nowhere. I have yet to enjoy a giant-sized book, but still have a few to go. And, uh, yeah, I've heard plenty of good things to this point about X-Factor and Hellions both, uh, and I'm looking forward to both. I haven't heard a ton about Wolverine or Cable yet. Um, those are... Uh, I mean, you, you said Wolverine's pretty good, but I haven't heard anybody say anything about Cable. It's all, It's like almost like I think I dreamt it, but I'm looking at it right now in, in the long box, or the short box, so I know it exists. <laughs> I just don't know if anybody's read it. Empire? 
that might be the book I'm least looking forward to. Uh, and that has nothing to do with whoever is the creative team on. I think it's Hickman and maybe Ed Brisson who did the writing on it. I just have zero interest in getting reinvested in the greater Marvel universe. Um, as far as I'm concerned, Marvel could like just as soon sell the X-Men to IDW or Boom or something at this point. I, I don't need to try and navigate the Marvel movie characters. <laughs> don't care. I figure for completionist's sake, Empire will be worth covering, but I'm not expecting much. And I mean, how much could the X-Men do in a story that's not really about them in the first place? We're going to get an aside that people who are reading the Empire Prime series could take or leave, right? I mean, it's a side story to the greater story, so I would hazard a guess that like 50% of the people who are reading Empire are not picking up Empire X-Men. Could be wrong. Who knows? Uh, Jesse wraps up with, I've been an X-Men fan for 27 years and have collected and read everything even remotely X-related since then and even before. I never left comics and even pushed myself through some of the extreme garbage that has come out. I hope you continue to enjoy your time reading, and I can't wait to hear how you will enjoy or will not enjoy the Wave 2 books. Well, until Banshee and Emma get married, make mine X lapsed. Thank you so much, Jesse. That, uh, that made my day. Uh, you know, I've, I got a few messages today that really made my day um, that we'll be, we'll be covering in a, in a minute here. But uh, thank you for, uh, for sending such a, a, uh, such a well-thought-out message. Um, I love getting stuff like that. I love hearing where people come from and uh, where they are now. Uh, I, it's funny. I, I feel kind of like a traitor in the fact that I have walked away, away a few times. You know, you hear the stories, and I want to say most people who read comics as adults and had read them as children left for a minute, right? Um, that's why it's so unique and novel when someone says they didn't. You know, you'll hear stories from someone who say, you know, even though I, even though girls entered my life, I never left comics, you know. And that's, to me, a rarity. Granted, my field of references is, you know, <laughs> is anecdotal and at best. But uh, I feel kind of like a heel for having walked away. I shouldn't have. And I regret it. I regret, even though I wasn't digging it, and even though... Sticking around with something I don't like kind of makes me part of the problem because nothing's going to get fixed. I still feel bad about leaving the way I did and when I did because um, I did leave about six months into the blue and gold stuff. And uh, actually just this past weekend, I finished uh, tracking down every single issue from gold and, and blue. Um, I finally got that you know that monkey off my back and... Don't have to worry about having to track those down again. I just hope one of these days I'll be able to read it. Um, I'm still missing a couple issues of red and a couple issues of, of black. But uh, blue and gold, the biggies, I got them. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jesse, for the message. Uh, really brightened my day. Uh, we have another message here that brightened my day from Ed Moore. This is regarding episode 50. He says, X-Lapse number 50 was solid. Anytime we put ourselves out there, it's scary. You for sure created something you wanted and needed. That's what being a maker is all about. Bravo. Keep it up. Thank you, Ed. That means a lot to me. Uh, Ed is going to be uh, partnering with me on a project in the not-so-distant future. We just got to coordinate, and uh, it'll be amazing. 
<clears throat> uh, <laughs> it also had some comments about Major X Lapsed. He said, You most certainly need to continue with Major X Lapsed coverage. Rob Liefeld deserves your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you, because that one, Major X Lapsed, is a. Uh, I, I don't know. I kind of regretted it <laughs> when I did it. I don't know. I felt like. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why I regretted it. I think I was expecting more from it than, than what I got, and uh, made me retroactively regret it. But uh, to Ed's first point about um, putting things out, you know, putting things out there, it's it's a scary thing, and um, it is. Uh, anytime there's a vulnerability there, right? You know, I'm I've said it. Till it's become, you know, a meme here But it's like I'm sitting in a room by myself Talking into a microphone about Whatever's on my mind And uh, that opens you up You know, you don't know You don't know where the discussion's gonna go all the time I do work from bullet points But it's not quite as scripted As some of uh, the treadmill stuff that I uh, that I did And uh, tangents just happen And personal anecdotes just happen So you really don't know where you're gonna be As you're doing it and uh, with episode 50, um, I broke, you know, my ex-lapsed rule and I, and I made it about me for uh, for the first part of that Just to, I don't know, give a little bit of context and, uh, and a frame of reference as to why episode 50 was such a big deal for me personally And since I recorded that, which was a few days ago now um, every Every couple hours when I would think about it, I would have a thought to not publish it I'd have a thought to go on And, uh, you know, unschedule it To drop when it did uh, Because I just thought I don't know, I second guess and third guess And fourth guess everything I do And I thought maybe it was just the wrong thing to do And part of me thought that I was making A, a horrible tragedy about me You know um, Which in a way I did And uh, it's just that I've talked about that tragedy A lot from the point of view that isn't about me And I thought it would uh, Add Again, add a little bit of context To do that discussion from my point of view Regarding only The, the creative aspects of it Not not all the emotional stuff As I mean, that's You don't need to hear me crying into a microphone That is that is on this channel If you're interested in hearing it But you don't need to hear that today <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, uh, I second-guessed that episode a lot and uh, I definitely had a mind to pull it down, cut off the first half hour of it, and then re-upload it. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't because, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but yeah, there is a vulnerability there. And, uh, and that was almost poetic in a way because I didn't have to worry about the vulnerability when when Reggie was doing the uh, the promotion and Reggie was doing the editing and because I knew he would take care of me and he would take care of the show so when when it comes down to me and it's uh and it's something that I'm second and third guessing it's it's hard to it's hard to bounce ideas off myself you know what I mean not sure if that makes any sense or if I'm just talking to hear myself talk at this point but uh but thank you so much Ed thank you very very much. Uh, next, Jody Yarden. Uh, this is regarding episode 50. He said, I just wanted to drop you a line and thank you for sharing your heart on episode 50 today. It's been a rotten year, but know that you bring a lot of joy to people's lives through what you do. Congratulations. And thank you, Jody. Another, another message that just made my day. Um, 
Another thing that I say on... I'm not sure if I've ever said it on this show, but I know I've said it on other shows to the point where it's, you know, if you if you pull the string on my back, this might be one of the one of my catchphrases, but uh, creating content in whatever form you do it, uh, video, audio, text. Um, if, if you're a content creator and you're listening to this, you know that it can be a very lonely endeavor. Regardless of whether or not you have a partner in it, it's still kind of lonely, you know, because, again, you're, you're just talking. And um, there's not, there's no guarantee of a, if you build it, they will come when you do this, because if that were the case, I mean, people would only be listening to podcasts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> we have a glut. So it's uh, not a matter of if you build it, they will come, but I sometimes get lost in my head here and don't realize that people do listen because uh, people are busy. People are busy and uh, don't always have the opportunity or the or the incentive to reach out and, uh, and give an attaboy or just say, hey, I listened. You just have to know, you know, in your rational mind that there are people listening. And uh, after episode 50... Um, the support that uh, this show and just me in general that I've gotten has been, uh, it sounds cliche to say overwhelming, but uh, I've been in a pretty, uh, (laughs) I haven't been in a 100% good place as a content creator over the past couple of weeks. So hearing that uh, these shows do make a difference or, or just a nice diversion to pass the time, that that means a lot to me. It really does mean a lot to me, and it uh, it's perfect timing <laughs> because for a little while there, I thought that maybe this was maybe I was barking up the wrong tree. But uh, but thank you so so much, Jody. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a a tweet from Mark Yeager, and this is also about episode fifty. He replied to to my announcement of the episode. He says. No spoilers, so I'll just say that I would take a special episode like this every day. And uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I've missed doing the more uh, personal from the heart sort of thing. Um, it had been, it's been probably oof, two and a half months since the last Chris's on Infinite Earths came out where... You know, that's my emotional shiatsu massage. So it's been a little while since I've done something like that. And uh, I wouldn't mind doing more of them. And you never know. <laughs> you never know. I do have that. Uh, I do have a few episodes in the works at the moment. So you never know. Um, but thank you for that. Because, again, that's more validation. Because I was afraid that this would be a huge turnoff to, uh, to anybody listening. And uh, to find out that, that it wasn't uh, means, means a lot to me. To get that confirmation really means a lot. So it means a lot to me that you reached out to say that, Mark. uh, Thank you so much. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it today. If uh, anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so on Twitter at Ace Comics or via the old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I think in my excitement during episode 50, I forgot to go through my my contact in the links, which... uh, I don't do terribly often. I guess I was just over overcome by the uh, the celebration. But uh, you can find show notes for this program at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Hopefully, when I actually get it uh, 
together and redesign the site so it looks better than, you know, a blog circa 2004. Maybe <laughs> maybe it'll be a little bit more clear how to find everything, but uh, everything's there. I, of that, I can assure you. It's just whether or not you can find it is the problem. Um, you could find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men on, on Facebook, where just earlier today... I posted a piece from an issue of Marvel Age magazine about uh, Pride of the X-Men, the the uh, you know the old X-Men cartoon special that I've never seen. I've actually never seen it. So you never know. Maybe one one Sunday there'll be a uh, an episode of Pride of the X-Lapsed. Eh, maybe maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> I I've always wanted to see it. I just never have. Um, and uh, I don't know why I never have. I just just haven't. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Lots of uh, sound there for your ears if you'd like it, but I think that's where we'll leave it. And uh, so much for this being a short episode. I apologize for taking up so much of your time today. We're about to break an hour. Uh, oh, actually, after theme music, we did break an hour, so there's another hour in the books. But uh, thank you all so, so much for uh, for sharing your time with me today and every day. And also for everyone who wrote in, uh, that that made me smile broader than uh, I've smiled in a in a while as it pertains to this uh, to this hobby and this project. So thank you all so much. Know that everything you guys say um, uh, it touches me deep, <laughs> as as perverted as that might have sounded. Um, it really does affect me. I, I really appreciate it. So thank you all so much uh, for, uh, for taking the time out of your day to reach out to me. But uh, I think that's where we will leave it. Uh, so until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 70 of X-Lapsed. Can you believe it? 70 whole episodes here, which is, uh... I didn't think we'd get to 7, much less 70, but, uh, here we are. <laughs> and, uh, now before we uh, get into the, today's book, a little bit of housekeeping. Now, uh, for those of you listening to this in real time, like, you know, today it comes out, you were supposed to get this episode a couple days ago. 
but the uh, day job kind of uh, precluded me from doing so. It uh, kind of got the best of me <laughs> that day. I actually had this entire episode scripted and ready to go, but when the day was done, you know, chewing me up and spitting me out, I really didn't think I had it in me to vocally, you know, perform for a better part of an hour, you know, and perform with quotes around it, of course. So in its place, I released an all-new segment of From Claremont to Claremont, Episode 3, where my buddy Jody and I discussed X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, from 1991. And I hope those of you who listened to that enjoyed it and weren't too put off that it wasn't another episode of X-Lapsed. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks like uh, at this point I'm going to try and keep releasing the uh, From Claremont to Claremont segments as, uh, well, segments. Um, a lot of folks have been telling me or been urging me to uh, to do so because... One giant 12 to 14 hour program might be a big ask, right? Even if it's only once a month or once or twice a year, as the case may be. Um, and when I started from Claremont to Claremont, I had uh, um, delusions of grandeur. I envisioned it to, as kind of being its own thing, you know, kind of separate from everything else I did, uh, podcasting and blogging alike. Uh, I even bought a domain for it. It's a 90sxmen.com, which I was shocked was still available. Um, but I guess at this point, it looks like uh, old FCTC will now be part of the uh, X-Lapsed family of shows, if I can call it that. And hopefully I'll be able to share segments on a weekly or near-weekly basis with uh, with the compilation episode of, you know, 12 to 14 to 16 hours. Maybe we'll compile them once all said and done, right? Uh, when a month's worth of books is in the books so to speak. But, uh, you know, I had really, really big plans for From Claremont to Claremont and some pie-in-the-sky expectations that, uh, well, they didn't really pan out. <laughs> it, uh, in my opinion, it kind of under-delivered on uh, what I was hoping for, especially when I weighed it against how many, you know, man-hours I was putting into it. And uh, But that's neither here nor there. We'll just, uh, we'll play it by ear and we'll just put those out as they need be. And hopefully folks will enjoy them and uh, be able to get a, uh, I don't know, wider breadth of, uh, of X-Men coverage here at the channel. Um, hey, you know, maybe, I, you know, I, I already have 90sxmen.com as a domain. Maybe I'll just have that redirect to X-Lab's site. I, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly an easier web address to share and to remember than xlapsed.chrisisoninfoadress.com. So, we'll see. We'll see. Now, if anybody has any thoughts or suggestions or even feedback on uh, From Claremont to Claremont, please, I urge you to feel free to share them right here. I mean, there are no rules. There's no, uh, no expectation. So any suggestions are definitely most welcome. But with that out of the way, let's get in today's book. It's a, it's a giant-sized book, which I don't think we'll have giant-sized things to say about. Um, this is giant size X-Men colon Nightcrawler number one. Set a May 2020 cover date. Story's called Haunted Mansion. Story in words, Jonathan Hickman. Story in art, Alan Davis. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price, 499 pennies. Went on sale March 25th of 2020. Now, we open in Westchester, back at the old mansion, which I got a figure outside of... Major X. This is probably the first time we've seen this place in, in quite a while, right? I'm confused as to whether or not the 
prior run of Uncanny X-Men took place at the mansion, or were they still operating at a Central Park? I I don't remember. I know they picked Kitty up from Central Park, and I remember a whole big to-do in X-Men Prime, I think they called it, before the blue and gold stuff happened, where they kind of established themselves in Central Park. I don't know, maybe one of the teams was in Central Park, the other one was in the mansion. I don't know, I guess I'd have to read it. <laughs> so, either way, it's weird to see the old place again. And it's actually, it's kind of sad to see the old place again. It's all overgrown and, uh, well, vacant for the most part. Anyway, there's a Krakoan gateway here. Of course there is. And from it step our cast. Magic, Eyeboy, Cypher, Nightcrawler, and Lockheed. Yeah, Lockheed's back and nobody bothered to tell us, huh? I mean, at this point, and going by Marvel's own reading order that they include in the back of all the books... We're going to be looking at the next issue of Marauders in episode 74. So that's four episodes from now, which I gotta assume that's maybe when we'll see Lockheed's grand return. So, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's not like there's a half dozen editors juggling this line of books, right? We can't keep things in order. Anywho, they're here to look for some sort of potential problem with this particular gateway. It seems that mutants, for whatever reason, are having some difficulty accessing it. So there's a lot of, like, warp fails here. From here, a double-page spread of credits not immediately followed by a roll call, because that's going to come later. For reasons, I guess. So, back to comics, our team is inside. iBoy takes one look around. I mean, he he's always taking a look. That's kind of his thing. He suggests uh, they hightail it out of there, because this place looks really creepy. Ilyana tells them to show respect to their former home. Nightcrawler agrees, but also can't shake the feeling that something is very wrong here. Just then, Lockheed goes all bird dog-like and lunges into some of the overgrown vegetation. And looking at this vegetation here, it's like, are we in, like, The Last of Us? Have the X-Men been away from the mansion for, like, 40 or 50 years at this point? There's a lot of green growth here, which, I mean, I guess we can blame it on Krakoa. We can lampshade it that way. So... Lockheed rushes in like a literal ball of fire before Nightcrawler can nab him and try to calm the tiny dragon down. As he does, however, Nightcrawler sees Thunderbird, the original Thunderbird from Giant Size. Magic and the rest rush over, however, by the time they arrive, old T-Bird is gone. Eyeboy suggests that the smoke from Lockheed's flames were just playing tricks on Kurt's vision, which I guess stands to reason, right? Just then, Kurt sees out of the corner of his eye another familiar shape. And if you've already, you know, looked at the cover of this issue, you'll know exactly who this is supposed to be. He clearly thinks this is Hound-era Rachel, and so he bamfs all over the place trying to catch her. The rest of the team isn't so sure, however, Eyeboy is. He mentions seeing someone decked out in red leather and spikes. Then, hey, it's Rachel. She presents herself to the team. Once they all lay eyes on her, she books it running deeper into the mansion until they arrive at a weird alien-like biological tunnel. It, it kind of looks like intestines, kind of. Now, Kurt manages to catch her, where, and he attempts to ask, you know, what in the hell's going on here? Rachel can only respond in a weird, nonsensical language. Doug suggests that it's some kind of a standard harmonic binary, which, okay. He doesn't bother to translate it for us, however. That is, if... You know, if there's anything even here to translate, I suppose. Doug then places his hand on the weird intestine-like wall and notes that there's a slight pulsing. And a second later, he sucked right into it. Whoops. 
This distraction proves just enough for Rachel to escape Nightcrawler's grasp and run even further down this nasty, disgusting pipe. Elsewhere, Doug is spat out of the you know gross, fleshy mass, plopped out in what I think might be the old Cerebro room. You know, that odd room with the bridge in it. Uh, there, at the end of the bridge, if this is even a bridge, uh, we see a glowing pink orb. Now, Doug goes to touch it with his warlocky hand, which does appear to react to it. When suddenly, a beetle skitters into the room? We'll, we'll deal with that later. First, let's go back to the team. Nightcrawler, who I want to remind us all is allegedly the star of this issue. <clears throat> Nightcrawler and company once again catch up to Rachel. Eyeboy makes some eye puns, which only makes me hate him more. I didn't think that was possible. Then, Rachel finally speaks, like a language we can understand. She tells Nightcrawler that she's trapped and sleepwalking. We then get a peek into her mind, though I don't think old Kurt is seeing anything that we're seeing. He, he's not a telepath. She talks of travel and migration. We see planets, a horde of weird alien beetles, and Cyclops, Storm, and Corsair fighting them off. I guess we just can't help ourselves with the space stuff here, huh? She then cries out for help before transforming into like a weird rat king of beetles. Like she just becomes beetles and falls apart. Then our team finds themselves surrounded by like thousands of these nasty little things. Kurt somehow immediately knows that these little things are bounty hunters. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but uh, we'll let him <laughs> we'll let him have it. We jump back to Doug, and he's chatting up the orb. It looks like it and the beetles are simply protecting their turf in this situation. Doug again engages his warlocky hand, which we'll be getting back to really soon. But first, the rest of the team continues fighting the beetles. And before we move on, it's funny, because every time I type the word beetles into my document, you know, B-E-E-T-L-E-S, it tries to correct it to uh, the band name. So I guess people don't talk about beetles in the plural very often on Google Docs. Anyway, back to the comic. Here, Magic, as Krakoan captain, pulls rank to tell Nightcrawler that there's, there's really no win in sight here. They just gotta grab Doug and get the hell out. So I guess captain ranks higher than councilman. I, I mean, maybe it's context-sensitive, I don't know. With that, Ilyana warps away to fetch Doug, while Kurt, Eyeboy, and Lockheed try to hold their position against this horde of alien insects. So we follow Magic to the Cerebro Room, again, if in fact this is the old Cerebro Room. There she finds Doug and Warlock chatting up the bugs. Now she's pretty shocked to see old Warlock here and uh, asks how long Doug's been hiding him. I mean, we, we readers can't be the only ones who have noticed that Doug's right arm looks like a friggin' phalanx, right? I mean, this has to have come up in conversation a time or two before, right? Whatever the case... Warlock says that his presence here's got to remain a secret, and Ilyana agrees. So, Doug reveals that these little beasties are the Sidri, and they've decided to take up a nest at Xavier's and are only acting aggressive because they're, you know, protecting themselves. It looks like there's going to be a peaceable end to this encounter, as elsewhere, all the beetles stand down. And so the team is reunited, and they're led to a glowing gold ball, well, not an actual gold ball, but an egg-like thing, nonetheless. Doug informs the team that the Sidri have asked for a favor in solving their current infestation. And that infestation is a mutant. So this egg kind of dissolves, and inside it we see its Lady Mastermind. 
who I could have sworn we already saw arriving on Krakoa back in that big ol' shoe drop issue, House of X number 5. Maybe she did and she left and then wanted to come back. Maybe she was just passing through Xavier's. Maybe we're not supposed to think about any of this. I don't know. Anywho, Lady Mastermind is the reason why we saw a Thunderbird and a Hound-era Rachel, which I guess is as good a reason as any. She was Her mind was wandering. She was sleepwalking. Remember, she was trapped. Now, Doug tells the team that the Sidri are cool with them now and will no longer block the gateway, so long as nobody screws with their nest. Then, a whole bunch of Sidri merge into another Rat King of Beetles, which kind of looks like the old sentient danger, you know, danger room, whatever the hell she was, to say a few final things to Doug. And so, our team takes their leave with Kurt happy that their Krakoan ranks have increased by one. Lady Mastermind. And we're out of here. We do wrap up with our roll call, in which we find out that the people we just read about were Nightcrawler, Magic, Cypher, Eyeboy, and Lockheed. Next episode is Wave 2, Book 3, Welcome to the Fold, Hellions. But first, let's talk about this giant-sized issue. Um, wow. Talk about pointless. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... Yeah, uh, hmm... This was called Giant-Sized Nightcrawler, right? I really don't know why this wasn't just jammed into a one-off issue of X-Men, because, I mean, it's not like Nightcrawler got any more spotlight than he would have in a normal, you know, team book setting. I was also under the assumption, and I mean, this is purely an assumption, uh, that all of these giant sizes were going to have to do with Storm's, you know, vault disease or whatever. Though... I guess maybe Lady Mastermind is vital and she'll play into that clearing itself up and this was just an element of that overarching story? Maybe? I don't know. Now, as pointless as I thought this was, it wasn't bad. Um, I actually quite enjoyed a lot of the character beats here. It it just didn't feel like it needed to be told. Um, and I get that these giant-sized issues are intended to like shine a light on the artist, uh, you know, put them into the forefront... And I suppose in that regard, this was, you know, very nice Alan Davis artwork. If you're a fan of Alan Davis, you're going to enjoy the way this book looks. I am a fan of Alan J- Davis, so yeah, I thought the book looked nice. But, uh, I can't help myself. You know where I'm going here. This is a $5 book. I mean, that's a lot of coin to drop on a book. That really didn't need the amount of pages it got, and really, at the end of the day, just didn't do much. I mean, our net positive here is like, hey, we found Lady Mastermind, but we already saw her entering Krakoa during the big Krakoa is for every mutant scene, right? I mean, and I, I know I, I know I rail on this, but it's like, we do have a small army of editors listed on these books. Maybe they all forgot? I, I mean, even I had to have my memory jogged by the Marvel Wiki, though, in fairness, nobody's paying me for my research and adherence to continuity. Speaking of which... Lockheed. Yeah, this probably isn't important to anybody, but I really feel like maybe they could have held off on this one until Lockheed officially came back in Marauders. I mean, it's not as though anything vital happens here, right? This giant's eyes could have come out a couple weeks later. Lockheed didn't even need to be a part of it. And I know, I again, another thing I rail on about is continuity and cohesion, you know, the things... You know, the sort of stuff that we're supposed to be way too cool for nowadays. But it's a nicety that I'd like to see continue in these books, and there's really zero reasons why it can't. What else? What else? 
Uh, Magic sees Warlock. I guess that's pretty cool. Um, that bit makes me think that Hickman's definitely got something in mind for the Douglock tandem, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Other than that, though, I really don't know that there's much to say. I mean, this this is an expensive book, which, in my opinion, underdelivers. It's pretty to look at, but essentially skippable. I mean, we could find out that this is going to be you know, play huge and loom large as we move forward, but I ain't seeing it. Also, and this is a little bit, I guess, uh, more of the sticker shock here, it's kind of a bait-and-switch to refer to this as giant-sized Nightcrawler. Because if you did drop $5 to read a Nightcrawler-centric story, you ain't getting that. You're getting Nightcrawler, but he is not the focus here. He is not the, He's not even the main character here. We could argue that Doug or Magic are the main characters here. Or hell, even Lady Mastermind, because the whole thing ends with her reveal. I don't know what to tell you if you came to this book looking for a Nightcrawler-centric story, especially in light of all the interesting things they're doing with Nightcrawler in the other books, or in, in X-Men, I guess. He's our, you know, he's our point-of-view character for so much of the weirdness going on in Krakoa, that when I found out we were reading this, I was like, okay, maybe we're going to get a little bit more of his insight. And we don't. All we do all we do get is him not even leading a team to check out what's happening at a Krakoan gate. I think we can say that Magic is the leader of this group. Which, why not just call it Giant Size Magic? You'd probably sell just as many copies. I don't know why it's called Nightcrawler. Uh, maybe Alan Davis drew the cover first, and they're like, hey, that looks great. We'll just call it a Nightcrawler book. But didn't get a whole lot out of this one. Um, I-, I thought the story was fine. It looked great. But uh, in the you know in the overarching Dawn of X story, it's, eh, it was just here. But uh, that's probably more than enough. <laughs> Complaining about this book I hope I didn't come across as Far too negative here But uh, I can't hide the fact That I was disappointed And I'm not going to lie about it either But uh, with that out of the way Let's hop into a fairly sizable Mailbag segment today Uh, We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about Marauders number 9 He says Another great issue of Marauders I feel like I'm getting a bit repetitive When we talk about this book Uh, The fake out with the deaths Was very clever And got me good now, if you didn't listen to that episode or read Marauders number nine, there was a uh, there was a pretty brutal death scene featuring Pyro and Emma Frost, which turned out to be an illusion. But uh, the talking point coming out of that issue was the fact that in the new Resurrection Protocol era X Men here, we could easily buy both those characters dying because they'd be back next issue anyway. So it was a fake out, and it worked very well. And uh, that death scene got me 100% too. I never thought for even a moment that this wasn't actually playing out the way it looked on the page. Um, And I figure, you know, this was all a ruse by Emma and the Cuckoos here, and it was almost as though the readers were being influenced as well, which is is cool on a meta level, I suppose. Uh, Damien continues, It's weird that we are so ready to accept scenes as real that previously we would have dismissed as dreams or fake-outs. The parameters of storytelling have changed. I can't wait for you to get to the next issue. This storyline continues to grow. In fact, I slightly resented it being paused for X of Tens. And yeah, the uh, shift 
that the resurrection protocols have provided cannot be understated. I, I think I might have railed on a bit too much about how that was like a, a little P problem when we discussed Marauders Number 9, but it's really wild how things have changed. I still, you know, if, you know, gun to my head, I couldn't tell you if it's a good thing or a bad thing, or, you know, just a thing. Uh, I'd actually be curious to learn what everyone else thinks about that as well. And Marauders, it's still that book. You know, it's the one I'm most looking forward to during the, uh, during the ex-lapsed working week, right? Which is a testament to its quality and the pattern that it's established in being the most consistently, you know, must-read of the line. And I mean, I hope it hasn't been too obvious, I mean, today included, but there are issues that we devote entire episodes to on this program that really don't deserve it. Um, in a lot of them, it feels almost as though the creators are sleepwalking through a story, and I'm here left trying to think of things to say about it. Uh, the most recent issues of about half the line have definitely had a bit of that in them, including today's uh, Giant Size book. Marauders, though, it's a goodie. It's a great book. And uh, as Damien put it, it leads to our discussions being a bit repetitive with all the gushing, but, I mean, it's a positive, right? That's a good thing. I, I, don't, mind, I don't mind going overboard and being repetitive when I'm saying good things. It's when I'm saying bad things or indifferent things, if I'm repeating myself at that in that sort of a situation, I... I mean, it bores me to say it, so it must be boring folks to actually hear it. So, uh, I do apologize for any negativity or dismissiveness, I suppose. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Marauders number 9, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Uh, next up, Jeremiah is giving us his Dawn of X number 1's roundup. He says, Chris, I finished Dawn of X Volume 1, which is the anthology book, and listened to all the podcasts except for Fallen Angels number 1. I'll get to that this weekend, most likely. I'm off on Friday and hope to do some reading and catching up on the fun stuff. I'd like to share what I thought of the first issues for this launch. One, it was exactly what I expected. Good stories and good art, mostly, across too many books. For once, I put my mind to not getting wrapped up in a bunch of comics that I'll like and just add to a growing pile. At some point, you just cannot buy every good comic, so I didn't. All that being said, listening to your podcast and then finding out about the Dawn of X trades has been great. It's a nice compromise to buying all the issues. And uh, it really can't be overstated. Um, the Dawn of X anthology trades are absolutely brilliant. And this is coming from someone who hates using the word brilliant because its overuse on the internet has rendered it to be mostly meaningless. Uh, but really, this is such a smart way to keep readers up to speed on everything without having to track down individual issues. It helps to give this entire era like an evergreen feeling, whether some of it deserves it, some of it doesn't, it's nice that it's there. Uh, I really, I feel it's a, it's definitely a, a positive thing, uh, especially with how fast and furious these books are coming out, with the prices on these books, and some current year situations that might preclude people from getting to the comic shop as often as they'd like. So, really, really cool stuff. Two thumbs up on the anthologies. Uh, Jeremiah continues, uh, Two, I like the stories and art in the issues, with the exception of Fallen Angels. I was lost for the most part, and the art was too dark for my tastes. In fact, the art is one of the high points for these books in my mind. That went for Powers of X and or Power of X and House of X, too. In most cases, everything is nice and tight, clean and easy on the eyes. And uh, yeah, Fallen Angels, all snark aside, 
is a tough book to follow. Um, I think the way I made it through was to... I mean, this is going to sound silly, but... (laughs) What made it easy to get through Fallen Angels was the moment that I realized that I should simply accept everything we're seeing as being exactly what it looked like, right? Early on, I was so busy trying to parse the purple prose and the dark and murky art, looking for symbolism, expecting something way more deep than we were actually getting. But, I mean, it really wasn't nearly as deep as I think we were supposed to think it was, right? The symbolism, if we can even call it that, was like, hey, look, a butterfly. (laughs) Everything else was basically exactly what we saw on the page. Um, It took me a while to realize that, but uh, once I did, I was pretty much able to jettison everything that was maybe a bit too pleased with itself and didn't add to the story, and just get down to the very, very, very bare-bones story that we actually got. I think it really... Like, it, it it wore a facade, right? It wanted to be something else. It wanted to be artsy. It wanted to be deep. But it wasn't. It was a very basic story. When you, when you sweep all the garbage and BS out of there, it's a very basic story. It's not a great story. But uh, without all the purpleness and the poetry, it was a little bit better than <laughs> otherwise. Still not great. Uh, also, I agree, the art overall for the line has been pretty solid here. Um, I think the only artist that I had any sort of complaints about, and I don't even think we can even call them complaints, was uh, Lionel Yu on X-Men. And with him, it was more of just his style being a poor fit for the type of storytelling Hickman was going for, other than being just bad. I didn't think it was bad at all. Um, Jeremiah continues. Now, this is how I would rank the number one issues from favorite to least favorite. I'm looking forward to seeing if you rank them in the Fallen Angels episode. And yes, by the time you get to the Fallen Angels episode, you will hear my rankings. Uh, Number one is a tie between Marauders and X-Force number one. He says, just a good mix of story development and action in each book. Pox and Hawks were light on the action and heavy on the story, so I appreciated there being some battles in these issues. And, you know, going from memory... I think I listed Marauders as my top book of the Docs number ones too. Very, very strong outing. Uh, I don't remember where I listed X-Force, but it too started off very strong. Uh, maybe not to everybody's style, but it definitely made a statement. And uh, as you're listening to this, if you, you know, in episode 70, when you get here, you'll know that X-Force has fluctuated, perhaps the most wildly, of any of the books. There are some really, really good issues, and also some really, really rotten ones as well. I don't think we've had such a, uh, what is it, polemic uh, book in the line just yet, outside of X-Force. Everything else has been middling, or really good, or really bad. X-Force jumps back and forth. His number two book is X-Men number one. He says, I felt this has a, was a very strong lead-in to the, to the new books and follow-up for the two miniseries that preceded it. I really like the stuff with the Summers family, too. And yeah, the Summer House stuff was pretty great. And it offered up so many questions about the current status quo. And I'm wondering if there's any backstory to mine here, right? Um, I remember asking early on during the X-Lab series, I had asked if there was an issue of the previous Uncanny volume that might have alluded to the big changes in the, you know, the Hoxpox landscape. And I was told no. I was told that that volume just ended and then Hoxpox, narratively speaking, just came out of nowhere and hit the ground running. So I think I'd like to see some, 
I guess, year one or year zero story to show us the establishment of the settlement. I mean, for all I know, that's already happened like in the interim between uh, Giant Size Nightcrawler and X of Tens, but if so, I'd like to see it because, I mean... Was did we know Krakoa was going to be you know a big deal? Did we know anything about resurrection? Did we know anything about anything really? Did we know anything about unifying mutants as you know one people, or did it just happen? You know, th- those are the things I'd like the answers to. But uh, you know what they say about you know watching the sausage get made, right? Now Jeremiah's third book is New Mutants number one. I enjoyed the heck out of this book and thought the art was fantastic, maybe the best of the bunch. Not a huge fan of the new young mutants leaving Earth so quickly after everything having just been established, but you can't have everything. That's my only real knock against the story. And yeah, I'm on record probably way too many times as saying that I don't dig the space stories. Um, the thing with this one is that the space story is its kind of a backdrop. You know, uh, Hickman pulls focus from the scenery and makes it a very strong character piece here. And I guess with Hickman, we're just going to always have to accept that there's going to be an element of space, right? <laughs> it's We're going to be dealing with it no matter what book he's working on. There's going to be some cosmic crap that is going to baffle my brain and I'm just not going to care about it. Thankfully, everything else in this New Mutant story was strong enough to keep me entertained and, you know, engaged with the with the characters. His fourth book, Excalibur number one. He says, good art, an okay story. I was a little lost. See my Fallen Angels comments next. I like the stuff with the Arthurian legend being part of the story. I just felt like not enough of what was happening was explained. Like, why did Apocalypse need Rogue to touch the gate? And what actually happened to her after she did? And that's a good point. To be honest, I haven't even thought about Rogue touching the portal since it actually happened. I just knew she was in a coma. Um, I couldn't tell you why that was important or necessary. Though, you know, being transparent here, I might have just I might just be forgetting something that was made clear. <laughs> you know, I don't remember. Uh, I just don't remember it being so vital to the story that they made a point of uh, putting it in the forefront. The fifth book of the the worst book of the line from Jeremiah is, of course, Fallen Angels number one. Easily my least favorite story because I had no idea of what was going on until the end when they say, hey, let's make a team. I have zero knowledge of the whole Betsy Braddock and Psylocke being different people idea. I feel like that would have been a help for this one. The art was only so-so. It was awfully dark, and I'm sorry, but the characters all looked alike to me. It was hard to distinguish who was who, even if I knew who everyone was. And, uh, yeah, hey, let's make a team is about the size of it, right? You just wait until they add a couple more members who literally stand around and do nothing for a couple of issues while Quanan acts all broody. Now, Betsy and Quanan, I've read the stories where this is explained like several times. Um, this was right after the Executioner song, probably early to mid-1993. And this is a time where I used to read my X-Men comics like a dozen times each, half dozen times each, you know, just, I used to read them over and over and over again, um, and I still haven't the foggiest idea what it all means. I'm also unclear as to when Betsy was returned to her original body, but I think I heard that that's tied in with the death of Wolverine glut from a few years back. Does, does anybody else remember that? How they launched like a half dozen titles, including a weekly title, all devoted to Wolverine being dead? Ugh. 
uh, you won't get any of these answers during Fallen Angels. Um, unfortunately, it's just... It's not explained. It's going to be mentioned a whole lot. Uh, Quanan will not go a page without saying, I remember Betsy was in my body. But we're not going to find out anything else. Um, maybe we can do like an X-lapsed explained subseries where we... Uh, we can focus on this story sometime down the line. Who knows? We'll we'll put that in the uh, in the nebulous idea pile for now. Uh, Jeremiah continues. I'm loving the show and especially the feedback you're reading. It's really enjoyable to hear your take and others all talking about the same thing. It's fun to be part of that conversation. I also can't wait to see what happens with Professor X being shot. And honestly, the feedback is usually the funnest part of this program for me. Um, I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, uh, podcasting and creating comics commentary uh, can be a lonely little mission. So it's great to know that we're not alone. Uh, we're all in this ride together and sharing our thoughts, our hopes, our expectations. It's it's really, really cool. It's equal parts humbling and, and awesome. Um, when I see... When, I mean, it's crazy. When I see people... When I see feedback... Regarding other people's feedback, it gives me like this weird, warm feeling, right? It's like, as cringy as that might sound, it feels like we're all like truly part of a club. And that really is, is very heartwarming to me. Um, as for Professor X being shot, I remember being very excited to find out how that was going to shake out as well. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah closes with next up, next update, episode eighteen, and Dawn of X, volume two. So thank you so much for uh, for keeping up and uh, continuing along on this ride, and for sharing your thoughts, Jeremiah. It's very much appreciated. Next, Andrew Franklin shares his thoughts on that Scott and Logan scene from uh, X Men number seven. He says, I think Damien is spot on in his assessment of that Scott and Wolverine scene and any potential attraction there. I also agree with you that having them be close friends doesn't seem right. I see them as friendly co-workers rather than drinking buddies. Alex is the Summer's brother that Logan would want to hang out with. And yeah, I mean, what was that What was that saying I probably butchered last time we talked about this? Like a tempest in a, in a teacup or a teapot or a teabag or something? <laughs> whatever, whatever one means making something small into something very, very big. I feel like the comics journos saw smoke and assumed there was fire. And they weren't, allowed, they weren't about to let something that could be considered as controversial slip by without getting their clicks out of it. And I agree 100%. Uh, I like Scott and Logan as sort of uneasy allies. Like, I'd want to see them hang out only because they have to. You know, make their social time be the exception rather than the rule. And I also agree that Logan and Alex would likely get along quite well. Uh, I mean, they might even use each other as a sounding board to complain about, you know, how uptight Scott is. You know, I think that's a... I think he... that Those two could have a, a better friendship than... Than Scott and Logan, I just don't, I just don't see it. <laughs> but uh, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on that, on that spicy scene. Uh, next, another Andrew. This is Andrew in Belfast talking about the Excalibur number eight episode and some of the stuff that I had, uh, I had weaved in there. Some anecdotes that I had told here. And Andrew says, Chris, I was listening to your story about the PhD students teaching the class in representation in comics. I actually started to apply to do a PhD on that exact subject last year and then didn't follow through with it. Now, having heard your George Perez story, I think that was a great thing. Mind you, I was thinking more up-to-date examples than Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. 
Same as you, actually. Same as you, actually. I didn't want to start mixing academic subjects with my hobbies. And yeah, totally. It's uh, it's always dicey when you go to turn your passions or hobbies into something you you know do either professionally, uh, professionally with quotes around it, or academically. I feel like you run the risk of changing something you love and choose to do into something you then have to do. Um, there's also like the familiarity of of a passion or of a hobby. It may lead to like prefrontal shorthand or free recall shorthand might be a better descriptor um, because being on the you know quote unquote inside as an actual comics enthusiast. My mind can be flooded with instances and situations from comics history when asked even the simplest of questions. Um, I overthink things as a as a rule, as it is anyway. I overthink everything. It's kind of that whole that what is that saying? You know, when you ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a watch or build a clock or something. Uh, for example, very early in that class, we had to compare and contrast two characters, and those were Superman and Adam Man. Two heroes of a similar vintage, uh, Adam Man debuted in 1943 and was clearly inspired by Superman, but also we were supposed to discuss why one endured and one did not. You know, Superman, of course, endured. Adam Man, you might be hearing for the first time right now. And Adam Man is rooted in very basic knowledge of atomic energy, which was hot-button stuff at the time, but would never endure the way Superman would. Well, rather than just saying that... My mind started to sputter to life with everything that happened in Superman's world from his debut until the present, you know, as of 2011 or 2012 or whenever I took this class. I kept going back to how Superman could be revisited or reintroduced at any point in history where Adam Man was definitely a creation of his time, right? Atomic energy was big. We had, you know, the, the whole thing at the end of World War II. It was very, very timely, but rather than writing a simple paragraph stating just that, I wrote several pages. Um, maybe it was to show off my knowledge. Maybe I will always just make things harder than they need to be. Or maybe I just want people to know that I know comics. I don't know. But this was like our first assignment. And rather than spending ten minutes considering you know, a thoughtful, paragraph-long response to this question, I spent an entire weekend torturing and indulging myself. It's like I couldn't help it. So I couldn't imagine writing a doctoral thesis on comics. I, I'd be long dead before I was done. I don't know if they'd posthumously grant me an honorary degree. I guess we could hope so, but I, there's no way I'd be able to finish. Ever. Ever. <laughs> I've got scripts... Uh, I've got Cosmic Treadmill scripts and Weird Comics History scripts that I started in 2016 that I'm not done with now. And these shows will never make air. You know, it's... I... I can go on. <laughs> and uh, maybe it's just my personality type, but even just doing comics commentary professionally with quotes around it, because this isn't professional, I sometimes feel like I make more of a thing of it than it really needs to be. Um... And sadly, this is actually something that kind of spoiled the hobby for me, in that I don't have time to consume any other sorts of comics commentary, be it podcasts or blogs or whatever. Uh, it's sadly, like, it's all about me and what I do at this point, and that's, that's sad. Um, 
I mean, I used to plan long solo drives just so I could listen to the podcast that I saved up on the way, right? I don't do that anymore, and that stinks. And I mean, there are plenty of shows I want to listen to and catch up on, and I should, but it's as though I just don't have, you know, enough brain space for any of it. It really, yeah, it's... When you make a hobby into something that you do, you know, if you're if you got a personality type like me, you make sacrifices, and it's un- it's unfortunate, and they're not voluntary. It's just something that happens. Andrew, uh, Andrew continues. Also, I feel I should point out that I never read the, any of the X-Book info pages, and I can attest to the fact that it hasn't affected my reading pleasure one iota. <laughs> My man, there are so many of these that I wish I didn't spend the time on. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll read some of these info pages, you know. I'll read it one time, then I'll stop and think, like, how in the world do I share this? You know, like, how do I sum this up? Because a lot of them are distilled, right? Uh, but a lot of them are just plain ridiculous. Um, it's just not possible. It's either I sit here on the air reading the entire thing out loud... Or I just say something like, yeah, it's another info page and the stars are talking to one another. Or, yeah, it's poetry about butterflies and, and moving on. So <laughs> it's, it could be weird. It could be weird. But thank you so much for your message there, uh, Andrew. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, next, our friend Evan Bevins is talking about X-Force number two. But first, he, uh, he fills us in on some other Marvel information. He says, FYI. The X-squared Chimeras made a brief cameo in Amazing Spider-Man number 35, that is the most recent volume, when Peter was using a device that gauged probability by scanning the multiverse. So did A-Next and Days of Future Past and some other alternate futures. I tell you what, I love it when they do that. And despite the fact that it's unlikely I'm ever going to buy anything with Nick Spencer's name on it, I'm very happy to hear that the uh, Chimeras got a little cameo time here. That's, that's really cool. It makes it seem uh, more real, you know? Uh, Evan continues. Listening to the X-Force number two episode, and I was about to send you a snarky but still good-natured reprimand for the comic about the, quote, lazy and delayed Whedon run. But it was canceled out moments later by you saying, two pages of credits will never get back. That made me literally laugh out loud. I kid, of course. One thing I like about your takes is that you respect other people's opinions while having your own. I love the Whedon run, but remember thinking the first issue was exactly what I expected from the creator of Buffy writing the X-Men, which I have to admit I can understand some people not liking. And I'm glad I'm not the only one remembering Strong Guy being the king of hell at at the end of X-Factor. Anybody but Peter David writes that, and I would have been ticked. And yeah, I I appreciate the comment, for sure. I always try to keep myself in check uh, when talking about things I really don't care for, because I... I, I've said this before, I always assume my opinion's wrong. Um, maybe it's just some of that Catholic guilt I was raised with. <laughs> I don't know. I try to keep things even-handed. And uh, I'm always careful not to say something, not to outright say something was bad. You know, I'll just consider that whatever that something was, simply wasn't for me. And I know that the Whedon run is considered by many to be a modern classic. It wasn't for me. But that doesn't make it any less important in the grand scheme of things. Um, you all know me when it comes to things like lore. I take the stuff I love, the stuff I like, the stuff I tolerate, and the stuff I dislike. To me, everything matters. Everything is part of the the tapestry, right? Everything is part of the story. 
Though in fairness to the Whedon run, I haven't read it since it came out. You know, I read it back in, what was it, 04, 05? Which, I mean, that means that I read it with these great huge gaps between each issue. Since, I mean, one thing we cannot argue is that it was very much delayed. You know, uh, the quality we can argue. Uh, whether or not we liked it, we can we can debate. But it was very, very delayed. I remember, I think there was a year where only two or three issues came out. So um, that's when I read it. And I didn't go back to revisit the, the issues before to see how they worked together. Because I, I wasn't doing anything with an analytical eye back then. I was just, you know, these were my stories. You know, these were my soap operas. And uh, in fairness to the Whedon run, maybe it deserves another look. You know, uh, everybody else can't be wrong, right? <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll throw up uh, an astonishing X-lapsed shub- sub-show somewhere down the line. We'll, we'll see how that goes, if anybody's interested in hearing even more of my voice, talking and perhaps talking poorly about such a well-regarded run. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, thank you for the information and the comment there, Evan. It's very much appreciated. And we're going to wrap up with a missive from Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, and he uh, he wrote a letter called "Exlapsed Catch Up." He says, "I spent yesterday and today catching up on the last week of episodes. Yes, even Major X. Yes, Major X got some listens." <laughs> As I mentioned before, I have not read any of these issues, and I'm experiencing it through your voice and thoughts. Thank you so much for doing it, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out with us here and, and keeping up. It really, really means a lot. And uh, Longbox Crusade is, uh, is a program that uh, I'm going to be making an appearance on, hopefully, sooner than later. We've been talking a little bit about that. And it's a, it's an absolute treat to, uh, to be invited. Um, the thing about me is I... I am not good at, uh, I, I'm not good socially. <laughs> I'm not good at talking to people, which is probably why it's so rare that I'm invited out to play. So it always means a lot when, uh, when someone reaches out and asks me to, uh, to come play. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Whatever the topic may be, I'm, I'm there. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Pat continues. I know I've chatted you on Messenger about listening. Feel free to mention that if you want. Nothing to hide about how much you inspire me and how much I enjoyed listening to you and Reggie. Again, thank you. That uh, I talked earlier about how this can be a lonely thing, and, and I'm sure, Pat, I'm sure you know. Uh, you put out a lot of work, too. It's, this can be a very lonely gig. And uh, so it's, it's just it's beyond awesome to hear, uh, to hear stuff like this. It's... Sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered, you know. Um, Pat continues. So in my binging of the episodes, I have a question for you and the listeners. And his question is, who do you consider a major bad guy in this Hoxpox era? With the good guys and bad guys hanging out, who really is a bad guy to watch out for? So I'll leave that for everyone here, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll consider it over the next several episodes here. See what's... What do we think? What do we think? I think we have our Theory A... Which is to say the island did it. But uh, we'll, we'll see as we keep going here. Especially as we get ever closer to, uh, to X of Tens, right? Uh, Pat wraps up with, Thanks again for all you're doing. I will keep on listening. And thank you so, so much. That really, really means a lot. This was a huge mailbag uh, segment here. And uh, I loved every second of it. Um, I've never had a creative endeavor or a commentary endeavor that's, that's elicited this kind of a response. And uh, it, 
it really does me very, very proud and very, very happy that we have this, you know, this little community that's, uh, we're all on the same ride here. We're at different, we're at different stops on the ride, but we're all on the same ride and we're all having a good time and we're all, uh, we're all really thinking about these books, you know, we're thinking about our expectations, what we like, what we don't like. It's just, it takes me back to being an introverted kid who would hang out on the fringes of the comic shop listening to the big kids talk, <laughs> you know, because I was too petrified to join in these conversations. Now here we are, and uh, and we're all part of these conversations, and it really, you know, makes my heart grow three sizes, you know. It's, it's really, really cool. It means a lot to me. Probably too much. But uh, if anyone out there listening is still listening, thank you. And if you'd like to reach out and be part of the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts at, uh, where is that? Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com and also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook at 90s X-Men and, of course, the whole Chris and Reggie archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time and their thoughts and everything else with me. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 78 of X-Lapsed, where we reach the halfway point of our giant size books. Today, we're going to be talking about giant size X-Men colon Magneto number one. Now, this one had a September 2020 cover date, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Ramon Perez, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White-Sabolsky, cover price $4.00. 99 cents and went on sale July 15th of 2020. Now it's worth noting that the solicitation for this issue teases that our creative team is going to be Jonathan Hickman and Ben Oliver, the latter of whom is responsible for the cover of this issue but has nothing to do with the interiors. 
Not sure what happened, but hey, you know, stuff does happen, especially this year. I just felt it was something that was worth noting. Uh, the rest of the solicit is nebulous and ambiguous enough that it could mean anything. So for all I know, the story we're about to read was always the intended one. Don't know, couldn't say. Anywho, we open in the now, with Magneto taking a large Hellfire freighter way out to the Faroe Islands. Now this is a group of islands that I swear I've heard of before, but... You know, I probably wouldn't be able to point them out on a globe if my life depended on it. According to my deep, deep wiki research, uh, the Faroe Islands are located about 200 miles northwest of Scotland. They're about halfway between Denmark and Iceland. Uh, Magneto, he's here, he deboards and he starts to chat up this particular island's caretaker. Now this island, and uh, there are a few ways I could pronounce this, uh, probably all wrong, it's either Mykines, 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 M-Y-K-I-N-E-S. That's the island. I'll probably say Mykines. Um, now, this is the westernmost of the Faroe Islands, measuring it at four square miles in size, with a population as of 2018 of 10. Yeah, just 10. Not 10, not 10,000, not 10 million, just 10. Uh, the highest recorded population that Mykines enjoyed was circa 1925 when it boasted 179 residents. So, uh, those are some tremendous highs, and now we're on the other end of that. Okay, so Magneto, he's talking to this fella, and comes flat out and says, I want to buy this island outright. The caretaker informs him that, uh, hey, you know, you're chatting with the wrong guy. He just watches over the place. There's another dude who actually owns it. Now, Magneto appears to know exactly who this other dude is and asks the caretaker to, do a, to deliver a message. The caretaker informs Magneto that this dude isn't known for keeping regular work hours, and so it may take a little while before hearing a response. Magneto is cool with it and says he'll wait, and so that's exactly what he does. From here we get our roll call. It's Magneto, Emma Frost, and Namor. Single-page spread of creds. How about that only one? Come back to comics, and we go back in time. It's flashback land here. Magneto and Emma Frost are talking on Krakoa. The latter has invited the former to dinner at the White Palace. Uh, not the White Castle, unfortunately. Now, this is an offer that Magneto couldn't pass up, considering Emma's new on-site chef, Saucier, is wildly talented. And from the looks and sounds of it, particularly surly, cantankerous even. Magneto chows down on some sinfully delicious lobster, which verifies that, uh, yeah, this old saucier's got some chops. Now, Emma finally decides to get down to business and tells Eric that she needs a favor. And you know, I'm pretty sure I've asked this before, but when exactly did we go back to referring to Magneto as Eric? I remember the last time I was, you know, this invested, uh, they were really pushing that Max Eisenhardt identity on us. I don't know when it ba went back to Eric. Is it still Eric Lenscher, or... I don't know. Maybe someone out there knows. Anywho, this favor is, uh, well, she's got a plan, but in order to make this plan happen, she's going to need an island. So we're back to Mykonos, where Magneto is still waiting there. He's hanging out among the puffins. Uh, he's cold, so he decides to move a teensy bit inland to start a fire. There really isn't all that much inland on this tiny island. Uh, he is soon joined by the caretaker, who informs him that the message has been delivered. And, you know, whenever his, his boss feels like it, he'll give him his answer. Magneto's not all that surprised. 
Now, if we, you know, flip back just a page or two here and we recall the third name we listed on the roll call page, well, then I suppose this big reveal has already been spoiled now, hasn't it? I'm not sure why we're bothering with all the KG dialogue here when we know from the roll call page that this mystery man they're talking about is going to be Namor. And so, bada-bing, bada-boom, the man himself, Namor, leaps out of the sea to greet Magneto. And they share a rather, you know, content- contentious, uh, you know, hey, how you doing, right? Uh, Magneto calls Namor out for keeping him waiting, to which Namor re- reminds our man that he is, in fact, a king and people will wait for him. Further, Namor claims that a, vis- a visit from a mutant is a f- fairly meaningless thing nowadays, since being a mutant in the first place gets less and less special every day. Talk about a self-loather, eh? Magneto decides, hey, let's get down to business, and says, hey, I want this island. Namor does not seem adverse to the idea, but says he's going to need a favor as well, and he invites Magneto to go with him for a swim. And so they dive into the deep, dark sea to a place called the Malloy Deep. Now they finally reach their destination, which is a door, sorta. It's a great big round door, which Namor points out is adorned with the spiral of the old kings of Atlantis. And it looks kind of like a kraken, so uh, I'll give you three guesses as to what's behind it. Namor asks Magneto if he can open it, and duh, of course he can. Unfortunately, this leads us to four pages of watching our heroes fighting, duh, a big kraken, or kraken, however you say that, a big sea creature. Uh, they even wind up eaten by the thing, and if I'm seeing this right, they have to swim out its uh, other end. Now they find themselves stood before some serenas. They're basically sea hags. They do this weird, like, you know, gatekeeper gimmick where they offer Namor the choice of picking up a spiral or a stone. One, they say, will save his life. The other will end it. Namor picks up the spiral, which looks kind of like a large snail shell. Once he grabs it, the critter within jams its tentacles right down Namor's throat. It's Magneto's turn, and our man is too smart to play the game. He notes that the hags gave two options, however, right now they're standing before three pillars. And so he chooses whatever the third thing is. Turns out it's a crystal, which he shatters, which renders all the serenas, save one, into... Bones? Skeletons? I don't know. Okay. It also saves Namor, so there's that too. The one remaining sea hag, who now appears to be far more haggy, it's as though maybe that crystal was keeping her young, I don't know, she hands over a key to Magneto, and our men are free to go. Once topside, they get back to business, and Namor hands over the island. Magneto then unpacks the Hellfire freighter, creating quite the wacky-looking citadel complete with a sentinel head, which looks a little bit like that entrance to the vault from a few issues of uh, X-Men ago. Our man then plants a gateway seed and is soon joined by Emma Frost. Magneto explains that it used to belong to Namor, this island that is, but now it belongs to her. He then asks what she intends to do with it, to which she says she will send invitations and see who shows up. The end. Uh, Next episode, we're going back to the new muse real quick with New Mutants number 11, but let's see if we can figure out anything to talk about with this giant-sized issue. Um... You know, uh, one thing I'll hand it. Uh, I am a sucker for world building, and this this issue did a little bit of that, literally. I mean, we are expanding uh, the the sphere of influence uh, that the mutants have here to yet another island, and it's going to be an island that 
I suppose Emma Frost will control or have some some sort of leadership role on, or she has designs on it. So it's setting it's setting some seeds here. So I guess we'll see what happens there. Uh, as for everything else, <sighs> I mean, it didn't lie. Uh, last time we talked about a giant size issue was Nightcrawler, and Nightcrawler was certainly not the the focus character. Here, at least, a giant size Magneto gives us a giant size Magneto story. Wasn't the greatest story. Really seemed kind of weird to have him dealing with, uh, you know, underwater sea hags and a kraken. But hey, whatever, right? It got us to the point where we got this new island with a weird sentinel head on it. Um, but as far as you know, you know me. I anytime we talk about a giant size issue. I bring up the fact that it's a dollar more expensive than a regular issue. So it's five dollars for a story that I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe isn't quite worth five dollars. Uh, I know that these giant size books are supposed to be like the artist showcases here, uh, the or the artist spotlight. But but they gave us a bait and switch here. We were supposed to have Ben Oliver, and instead we got Ramon Perez. And uh, you know nothing against Ramon Perez here, but. The art really didn't stand out to me. You know, if, if we're do, doing something that's, you know, quote-unquote the artist showcase here, then I expect to have my socks knocked off, and I, I didn't. It was good. It was good art. Uh, no better than, you know, nothing exceptional, though. So I don't know what the purpose of this was. Unless, of course, he was just, a uh, you know, pinch batting for, uh, for Ben Oliver, which is certainly a possibility. But, uh... Even so, eh, I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot to this issue. Just like the last two issues of Giant Size we looked at, we looked at Giant Size uh, Jean Grey and Emma Frost and Giant Size Nightcrawler. Now with Giant Size Magneto, these could have just been extra issues of X-Men. And they could have been trimmed down so they would fit the regular page length. Uh, it's, it seems like this is just really dipping when you don't need to dip. I, I mean, X-Men is, for all intents and purposes, a one-shot book now. We're not getting extended stories in there, except for the ridiculous Brood one. But we're usually getting these one-and-done stories that any of these stories that we're getting in Giant Size could have been fit into. And it would have been fine. We wouldn't have even batted an eye at it. But here we are, paying an extra dollar for something that... You know, it really isn't feeling all that special. You know, you think about back in the day how annuals and things like giant sizes and king size specials, they were special. You know, they had this feeling where they were a little bit more than what you'd usually get. Here, um, I swear I read this issue in under 10 minutes. That's not good, you know? And, and I, I do understand that that's just the way things are these days, but... Still not good. <laughs> not something that I would uh, tell anyone to run out and grab. Um, uh, if you're a Magneto completionist or a Namor completionist, or you just want to know uh, about the islands that the X-Men will inhabit or occupy, then this one's for you. Otherwise, I think you could probably skip it. And if this Faroe Island ever comes back up again, I mean, that's what editorial footnotes are for. Just say, hey, this happened in this book. If you want to read it, go read it. <laughs> Because you don't absolutely have to. Unless you really, really want to see Magneto and Namor crawl out of a Kraken's ass. You know. 
But yeah, that was Giant Size X-Men colon Magneto number one. Let's uh, dip into the mailbag here. We have a Damien double take today here. We're going to talk about two books with Damien. The first of which is Wolverine number two. Now, Damien says, well, I'm not in love with this Wolverine series. I quite like some of the characterization. The scene with the beers on the lawn worked really well. And it's beautifully drawn, but I'm not all in on the story. As you say, the deaths are meaningless and don't even add jeopardy in the current era. Yeah, there really isn't much to this, is there? I mean, I think my main takeaway from both issues of the Wolverine series so far was that I kind of dig this this Bannister guy. I think he's pretty cool. And uh, like you said here, the scene with the beers on the lawn was pretty cool. We have... There was a bit at the end there where Wolverine just goes to throw his bottle, and uh, and Jeff Bannister, the man with the manicured lawn, he goes, "Dude, come on," <laughs> you know. Thought that was kind of cute. That was pretty good. But uh, and yeah, it looks great. It looks great. Uh, but it just doesn't feel like anything really. Doesn't feel like anything really worth paying attention to. Uh, Damien wraps up with. I was surprised you didn't pick up on the parallel between the sick daughter and the pale girl. I suppose we'll find out next issue. And no, I did not. I didn't put together any sort of parallels between the two of them. I wonder if that will be a revelation uh, that we'll get next issue. That that could be very interesting. It would also be kind of subtle, which is not something I really expect from uh, from the writer of this uh, Wolverine series. I, I, I'm, I assume that we're just going to always be bashed over the head with everything, so... This bit of subtlety is uh, not welcome, and it would be very interesting to see play out. Uh, Next, Damien's going to talk about my favorite issue, X-Men number 9. He says, It's ironic that you ask us about jumping off points whilst reviewing the issue where I jumped off of Dawn of X. Rereading this issue, it's actually worse than I remember. I really don't have Hickman's love of space nonsense, and this storyline centered it. I was able to cope with it in New Mutants, where characters were set, a, set ahead of the space nonsense. That's also the strength of the original Brood Saga by Claremont, Cockrum, and Smith. But this is too much. Totally agree. 100%. Um, in the New Mutant stories, you know, it hardly even mattered that they were in space, right? It was just a setting, like any other. And it was the characters that were given the spotlight, and uh, their, their interpersonals and all that stuff... They could have been in the desert. They could have been in space. They could have been under the sea. It doesn't matter. This, though, I hated this issue. I, I try not to say hate when it comes to comics because, eh, to be honest, it's a pretty strong emotion to harbor against a stack of paper. <laughs> but, oh, I hated this. I thought this was just too much, right? Um, if I didn't have the, you know, the comics sickness that I have where I just can't walk away... I think I'd be right there with you, and this would have been the issue that I would have said, okay, tapping out, done, can't do it. I hated this issue that much, and I can't remember any other time, like another issue of any comic series that made me actually just want to drop it cold. This one did, because it just, it it felt like, you know, a kick in the teeth. It was just like, this is time we're wasting, and, and all for like a goofball, oop, brew, ate the egg. Why? Why? We didn't need to do this for two months. Uh, Damien continues. By the way, you said they retconned the origin of the brood. Does that mean it's no longer that Claremont and Cockrum watched Alien and thought, hey, we could do that? (laughs) It's funny you mention that, because that brings me to another Usenet flashback. Um, I remember being 
kind of heartbroken when folks would point out how how at times Claremont could be unoriginal, you know? Uh, you think about all the stuff that he added to the X-Men and to, to comics in general, and then someone goes through it with a comb, and it's like, well, he took this from here, this from here, this from here. And, I mean, we have the Brood as the alien ripoffs. We have the Imperial Guard as Legion stand-ins. We got the Star Jammers having some Star Wars elements. We got the Hellfire Club being the Hellfire Club, right? Probably a bunch more that I'm forgetting, but I, I was so saddened by these revelations, and I'm not even sure why, because writers borrow from each other all the time. So, you know, there's that saying that there's nothing new under the sun, and, and, and there's very few things new under the sun, I suppose, is probably a more accurate statement, but I think we all draw inspiration from wherever, consciously or otherwise. So I remember always getting a little bummed out when people would be like, well, yeah, Claremont's not that great. He got this from here and this from there. and Yeah. <laughs> Damien continues. You asked about when we jumped off books, and most of mine have been related to real-world events. In 1989, I got my first part-time job in McDonald's, and I was 15 and wasn't expected to contribute to the household. I was, wor- I was earning two pounds... I don't know. How do you say that? It would be $2.01 here, but uh, is it like £2.01, or is it something something pence I, I don't know how to say foreign to me money i i don't know but uh, uh we'll keep going here uh he was earning 2.01 pounds an hour and comics were 50p each at that point i was buying everything i could get my hands on by both marvel and dc it was only when i went to university in 1992 that i had to start dropping comics in fact, I dropped back to just one ongoing, Sandman, and spent most of my comics budget on back issues, which were often considerably cheaper than new comics. Gradually, my comics collection crept back up, and I was back to reading Uncanny by issue 300. I stuck around until the, ed- the end of the Age of Apocalypse. And that was a good run. Uh, 300 to the, uh, to the AOA. Probably what I'd consider my wheelhouse. You know, if I had to pick an era that kind of just... that brought me in and didn't let go. You know, that that was pretty much it. Um, that's kind of where I formed my love and appreciation for this franchise. And uh, probably the first time I felt like I was on solid ground with uh, the concepts and the characters, right? Uh, I came in at the tail end of the Uncanny 200s, which was a very hectic time. And a time in which it felt like there was a whole lot of spaghetti being thrown at the wall. You know, just seeing what might stick. I feel like by the time we hit 300, Lobdell, Nisi, Asa, and company, they had a pretty good feel for the characters and the direction. So it was more grounded, it was more uh, stable, you know, uh, more consistent. Whereas before that, it was like, well, let's see if this works. And no, no, it didn't. Let's try something else. It felt very, very wobbly. I actually recall being nervous about the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, I was still young to the hobby, and I didn't know much about gimmicks that didn't involve foil and holograms. So actual gimmick storytelling was something completely foreign to me. I enjoyed the Age of Apocalypse once I realized it wasn't going to be permanent. Because the thing of it was, um, for, for someone who takes things quite as literally as I do, you know... Marvel, they were wise to make this era run for four months, right? Considering that, you know, previews catalogs would give you two or three months ahead. So while you're reading in issue one and you grab the next previews magazine or previews catalog, 
you saw that we were still in the age of apocalypse then. So you had this weird kind of, or I had this like weird kind of stomach churning there. It was like, uh oh, are we not going back? And maybe it was made perfectly clear that these were four issue minis, but I didn't know it. And uh, it made this move feel more real. So like we were reading X Men Alpha, which kicked it off. We didn't already know that X Men Omega was in the offing. I'm sure some people did, but I didn't. So it was just like, wow, this might be un- this might be just the way things are for a bit, you know. So that was kind of nerve wracking for uh, how old was I then? Fourteen, fifteen, uh, young and dumb, or or one or the other, maybe both. Uh, Damien continues. I left after the Age of Apocalypse because the first few issues afterwards were all terrible. Yes, they were. <laughs> they were. Uh, I think I explained this, uh, my sensation around this time is it being having the feeling like it was the day after Christmas. You know, everything we were looking forward to was over and everything just kind of felt flat. Um, I actually wound up walking away from my first ex hiatus uh, three to four months after the AOA wrap myself, so. I wasn't long for the fandom after that either. Uh, Damien continues, I came back for Claremont's return, but only lasted two issues. Yeah. (laughs) Now this was rough. Uh, I remember how excited everyone was for this. Um, People were prepared and proclaiming for this to be the next golden age for the X-Men before the first (laughs) regrettable issue even hit the stands. Um, I remember reading on, on Usenet, you know, the old stomping grounds, that there were folks who were hoping that Claremont would come back and, you know, do the whole Patrick Duffy thing. He would Patrick Duffy out the entire previous decade, making it all a bad dream. And, well, it wasn't long before we all learned that there might be a little something to that whole you-can't-go-home-again saying. Uh, I think people wanted Claremont to come back and play the hits for a bit, but he didn't. I think uh, by the time Claremont came back, I was... I don't know how familiar I was with his original run. Um, he came back... What was it, like around 2000? So I probably had read either the first or the first two of the Essentials volumes. So that's pretty much what I knew of Claremont. And then whatever back issues I was able to find cheap uh, leading into his departure... So I didn't know Claremont then the way I do now, but I was still expecting something far different than what we actually wound up getting. I thought we would do like a, you know, old home week, you know, uh, the the high school reunion where it's like, okay, here are the characters, this is the original vision, and let's let's get going here. Let's do let's let's play some hits, and then then we start doing our our tryout garage band stuff, right? Instead of that. We got this weirdness with, like, the Neo, who were supposed to be, like, a step above mutants, even though they were absolutely the same. And then there were hints that, like, Kitty Pride was one of the Neo, or she was switched in the in the bassinet or something. We got the Twisted Sisters. It was just awful, awful stuff. And this was a huge surprise to, like, everyone, because it felt like he was almost... It was almost like he was trying to write the worst, most incomprehensible X-Men stories that would ever be told, right? It's like you have to try to fail that spectacularly. Speaking of which, let's go to Damien's next point. He says, I came back from Morrison, but left when I heard Chuck Austin was taking over. (sighs) 
Chuck Austin. Um, I've met a lot of folks who took a break when he came on the books. I actually know a few people who were permanently cured of their ex-fandom when he showed up. So he is a divisive fellow. I stuck out through the entire thing, but I totally understand why people wouldn't. And it's weird, because I remember when it was announced that Austin was taking over Uncanny from Joe Casey, who had a bit of an incomprehensible run himself, I was kind of excited. I was excited for Austin to come on. Um, I'd only read a few things from him. I read uh, U.S. War Machine, which came out through the Max imprint. It was one of the Max launch books. Uh, I think it was like a 12-issue miniseries. It was like all in black and white, so it was a, like a buck or a buck fifty an issue. I think it was weekly. But uh, I remember that, and I, I thought that was okay. And then also the Ultimate X-Men Annual that introduced Gambit. I thought that was good, too. I thought that was all pretty okay. But that didn't last long, did it? <laughs> Uh, handing Morrison's new X-Men over to him was, like, staggeringly misguided here because they moved Austin from Uncanny over to new X-Men, which went back to being regular X-Men, and I believe, I might be mistaken, but I think they brought Claremont back for Uncanny around that time for another go because Extreme was over with. So, yeah, felt very, very misguided, but then again, maybe Joe Casada was still in temper tantrum mode and was trying to send a message... That Morrison wasn't all that great? I don't know. Damien continues. My comics budget has always been tight, and every X-Men book I buy stops me from buying something else. I currently buy no DC books, as I got really into X of Tens and bought all 32 parts. I always feel a little bit guilty about how much I spend on comics, and I think that is one of the things that encourages me to drop books. If I spend four pounds on a comic that I only read once when I already own thousands that I would happily reread, can I really justify that expense? And that's something I, I don't worry about because I'm a dirty addict. <laughs> I buy books that I know I'll never actually get around to reading, uh, just so I keep my runs intact. It's not... It's a really bad place to be as a, as a fan of any sort of hobby and a collector of any sort of media because it, you're a slave to it. And I am absolutely a, a prisoner to this addiction, you know, this collection. It's um, definitely not a bit, good place to be. Not a good place to be. Uh, right now, I've dropped, I've dropped a bunch of DC books, but I still collect far too many, especially since I haven't actually read a new DC comic in like a year Maybe more? I mean, at that point, buying just one DC book would be too many, right? But it's like, I got these runs. I've got, uh, I've got so many titles that I've got collected since, like, the day I was born. So it's hard for me to pull, you know, pull the trigger and stop buying action comics. You know, I've got, like, a 600-issue run, uh, you know, a straight through of action comics, and it's... I hate what's going on there now, but at the same time, it's like, do I really just invalidate the rest of my, like, make my collection less complete just because I'm not enjoying this? I think uh, what we in the biz would call uh, part of the problem is what I am. <laughs> I'm definitely part of the problem. A big part of it. Uh, Damien continues. I'd like to thank you for describing me as mentally balanced. Would you be willing to repeat that in a court of law? Yes, I would sign anything you need me to sign. I absolutely would. I am, after all, a psych grad student, so my word carries probably a little bit less than anybody in off the street. So whatever, whatever I can do, I'll do. 
Uh, Damien continues. Seriously, it's nice to hear how much you appreciate the feedback. I just wish I could be as, as consistent as you. I still struggle to produce one podcast a month. I'm in awe of your work ethic. And thank you. That means that means a lot. That really does. And the feedback is fantastic. Um, it's definitely provided some of the funnest times I've spent in... You know, it's been almost five years that I've been creating content every day. Uh, January 30th of 2016. So we're just shy. Um, we're under two months away from the five-year anniversary of of me putting out content. And uh, the feedback I get on this show is some of the greatest uh, stuff. It's really, really good. It really helps to keep me motivated. And it's... Uh, I, I can't explain it. It's just... It's such a good feeling. It's a really, really good feeling. And consistency... I mean, I just mentioned that I'm addicted to <laughs> collecting stuff that I'm probably never going to read that's just going to take up space. Consistency is a little bit easier when you have such an addictive personality. So it's probably not the best thing in the world, at least not for me. Uh, because, you know, they say the best stuff, uh, the best stuff creatively, the best stuff just in life is intrinsic, right? Whereas there is... An intrinsic element to what I do um, It's a little less intrinsic And more obsessive If that makes any sense You know, it's uh, it's funny uh, Reggie and I would talk a lot About the collector's mindset You know, that was something That we talked about a lot Off the air Something that just fascinated both of us Because that's uh, just something that we all have in common, right? At, at varying levels, of course, but we all have that in common that we do collect things. We like having things to keep and to look at and to read and to share and to show people. It's a. Uh, I think that's something we all have in common. So we would talk about that a lot. We would try to like break it down to like what what inspires us to do it. And I don't know that there's actually any sort of answer to that, because I think we all do it for different reasons. Of course, there's overlap, but it's like a spirograph version of a Venn diagram, right? So we have all these circles that are like overlapping in weird places over and over again. So it's a lot of different things that fuel the collector's mindset. And uh, while we talked about this, um, I became his first case study, probably because, you know, I got it bad, right? <laughs> I have it really bad. Reggie was able to, um, for pragmatic reasons and for space reasons, he was able to winnow down his collection to just the things that he cared most about. I can't do that sort of thing. I don't have that kind of willpower and control to where I know that there are bo long boxes in the other room that I'll never open again, you know, and uh, I still can't get rid of them. He was able to do that kind of thing. So I became the first case study to just try to get to the bottom of this. And we talked a lot about collecting and the need to have things and the need to keep up with things, right? Like physical things. From there, I broke off to discuss collecting things like uh, content, self-made content, right? Uh, at least to me, it seems just as, if not a bit more collectible than whatever your chosen hobby or passion might be. Right now... If you were to go over to xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, you'd see the, you know, the official subdomain for this show. You'll see that I utilize the blogger flipcard format. 
Okay, now the flip card format is basically just that. It's just a bunch of little panels, really. Because as sad as this might sound, it gives me the opportunity to view everything that we've done with this show at a glance. To me, looking at the screen with all these little tiles on it, because each tile represents a program, it's like a great big collection right there in front of me. Something that we created, and it's we keep adding to it, and it keeps growing. I, and it feels like something that we are collecting. You know, it could be wildly collectible, self-made content. Uh, if if you're the kind of person like me who's kind of kind of whacked out and stuck on completionism, and uh, you know, just a, a big old weirdo. But rest assured, the shows will keep coming because I I can't let go. So <laughs> we're all good there. Now, that'll do it for today. If anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. You can reach me at Ace Comics on the Twitter machine or via weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could check out blog posts and show notes at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. And as mentioned, you can see the wicked cool flip cards at uh, xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can see the wonderful collection that we've put together there. Uh, you could chat us up about whatever you want at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you could check out the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that includes he and I talking about collecting, and him actually having his own program where he talked about collecting with a bunch of other people. So if that's your thing, that's definitely where you can find it. But uh, I think that's where we will put a pin in it today. Uh, not so giant size episode for a giant size issue, but... Uh, We do what we can. Uh, One more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 89 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, wow. Feels like it's been a little while since we did, uh, 
you know, plain old vanilla episode of X Lapsed. It's might take a little while getting used to saying that. Uh, it's, it was a nice little uh, vacation last week, uh, celebrating Christmas and talking about Christmas with the X Men stories. And I thank you all for indulging me uh, for the little vacation there. I hope folks enjoyed it. But all good things come to an end, I guess. And so we are back to. The regular old grind here. Um, I know I needed the break because, boy, these Dawn of X books were kind of getting under my skin. So uh, hopefully, the book we're going to discuss today, eh, hopefully we're on the, you know, gets us off on the right foot here, going back into business as usual. Now, the book we're going to be discussing today is one of the giant size books here, the fourth of five. This is Giant Size X-Men Phantom X, number one. Now, this had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called The World, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Rod, the ridiculous Reese. Oh, boy, this book. We're going to talk a lot about how this book looks. It is just, oh, boy, it's great. It is beautiful. Uh, letters by VCs Ariana Ma- Mayer. Mar? Ariana Mar, I think. Um, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $4.99, went on sale August 5th of 2020. Now we open, and we're in a lab where babies are being grown in canisters. Uh, there's a bunch of weird, like, Sienkiewiczian stuff flying around in the forefront, which is really cool. Uh, there's also a lot of talk of ideas, advanced ideas even. And, well, I mean, there are some AIM beekeepers on the cover, so there you go. Now, a pair of doctors are having a conversation about what it is that they do here. And what they do here is worship science. In a Hickman book? Well, I never. Hmm. There's a little bit more yada, 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 until they uh, come across a pair of identical babies. Like, identical, identical. Clones, even. They talk about what an astronomical impossibility such a thing is, before deciding that they probably should keep one and toss the other. Um, at the time, you know, you don't know if this baby's supposed to mean anything, or maybe even be someone we know. Might find out it's the star of the issue. Or maybe it's just a scene Hickman really wanted to write to sound high-concept and sciency. Maybe we'll find out in just a few pages. Hmm. Uh, roll call. Phantom X. That's it. Uh, single-page spread of credits, thank goodness, because, I mean, we wasted enough space on that roll call. We resume with the comics a decade later. Here we see a beret-wearing Phantom X about to re-enter Danny the Street. I mean, I mean the world. Morrison created them both, right? I guess it's, it's okay. Anyway, he's got the Howling Commandos with him, and they spend about a page and a half trying to deduce the origin of Phantom X's accent. Anyway, inside the world, the Howlers fight off a bunch of robots. Phantom X climbs up a great big spiral tower then hops on the back of a pterodactyl and flies away. He reaches a young boy, who he asks if he'd like to leave. The boy says no, not yet. From here, we jump ahead another decade, ten years later. We rejoin Phantom X, who's arranging a deal with Sebastian Shaw and the Hellfire Club to re-enter the world again. After some chatter, the Hellfires agree to accompany him. Once inside, they're attacked by even more robots, and a nasty uh, octopus-looking thing that I suppose could be a robot, or it could be like Cthulhu sort of thing that people like sticking in these books. Whatever the case, Phantom X leaves the club to fight while he runs off to find that boy again. Now the boy is older. I mean, it's been ten years, right? 
Phantom X unmasks, revealing them to be identical twins. Maybe even that pair of clones from the opening scene. Anyway, the boy now man still is not ready to leave. He's got too much work to do raising the children of the world. He tells Phantom X it'd probably be for the best if he doesn't come back. And so, ten years later, Phantom X doesn't go back. Instead, he's enjoying some time on the beach. He's not going to try to re-enter the world. And in fact, he suggests that he may never try to again. Until about ten years later. Or exactly ten years later, why not? Now, he's decided to go back to the world here. And uh, he surrounds himself with a group of... LOL randoms, uh, the Humungonauts. This is really starting to feel like Baby's first Grant Morrison comic. Um, let's do a roll call for the Humungonauts. Red Eye, he looks kind of like a space knight with a giant red dot on his mask. Emotapool, which is a merc with a smiley face mask. Rustbot, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. And Mohawk Person. Who has a mohawk and kind of looks like a reaver So they enter the world And it's not long before the humongonauts realize that they're only being used for bait Because Phantom X tells them they're being used for bait They're attacked by a robot horde and they probably all die Phantom X then meets up with his clone brother again And the brother says that they're building something in the world that cannot be stopped Ten years later, we actually jump into an honest-to-goodness Grant Morrison comic. It's New X-Men number 144, where Wolverine and Cyclops meet up with Phantom X to enter the world. And Cyclops becomes sloppy drunk, which I suppose we might blame for how drinky the current yearbooks are. I mean, if Morrison did it, how can we say it's wrong, right? They go inside the world. They fight off robots. They fight things again. Phantom X then runs into Ultimaton, or Automaton, who I'm guessing we're supposed to figure is Phantom X's clone twin brother guy? Anywho, Ultimaton, or Ultimaton, he tells Phantom X that he built the world and has broken it. He then has a very confusing and high-concept conversation with himself. From here, we jump ahead not quite ten years later. Phantom X is hanging out with an AIM beekeeper, asking such high-concept things as, what is real? Suddenly, and thankfully, a Krakoan gateway opens. From it emerge Storm, Cypher, and probably M. Uh, Storm tells Phantom X that she is dying. Oh yeah, you remember that plotline? Yeah, I guess it's back. Also, that mutant scientists believe that the cure for what ails her is somewhere inside the world. And so they need his help getting in there. Phantom X agrees, and we wrap up with them doing the thing. So I'm guessing that our final giant size, giant size X-Men colon Storm, which we'll be getting to pretty soon here on the show, will take place inside the world. So, uh, like 30-odd pages of X-Men fighting weird robots and spouting pseudoscience until they run out of pages? Oh boy. That is giant size X-Men... Phantom X number one. Next episode, we'll be talking about Marauders number 11, but let's talk about this issue here, shall we? Okay, let's start hot, okay? The art here, oh boy, it's phenomenal stuff here. It's like you can't even put into words how awesome this looks. Uh, every page here is an absolute treat. It's just gorgeous stuff. Uh, the world, 
offers like the perfect chaotic environment for Reese to play in. And honestly, I couldn't imagine this issue looking any better than this. Just absolutely amazing. Worth the price of admission and then some. Perfect, perfect stuff. As for the story, well, we got some Chris problems here. Uh, Let me just come out and say, I don't get Phantom X. Uh, Outside of the really cool design, I don't find him anywhere near as interesting as I think I'm supposed to, and as most folks seem to. He always kind of struck me, and this might sound like heresy, but he struck me as a gambit stand-in. I mean, this is a character created by Morrison, so this, you know, is probably heresy. But, you know, stop and think about it. They're kind of cut out of the same cloth personality-wise. And just like Gambit, Phantom X is a character whose design kind of, like, oozes cool, right? Uh, He's got this aura around him, where on the face of it, you can't help but to be drawn in. You want to know more about these characters. But then, just like Gambit, we learn that he's surrounded and embedded by some horribly boring crap that the creative types always seem to go back to. Gambit's got, like, Belladonna and the Thieves Guild, which is... which sucks, (laughs) and is responsible for some of the dullest stories from the 90s. And Phantom X has, you know, Danny the Street. I I mean, the world which is high-concept and pseudo-sciency enough for 21st century comics. But to me, it's just so very dull. Um, In my Morrison rereads, I always skip the Weapon Plus stuff, as well as the final arc with the Sylvester art and that white beast, because I think that's very boring, too. But uh, not my cup of tea. Um, With that out of the way, what do we got here? Well, for all I know, this might just be a retelling of things we already knew, or it might be a brand new origin story for Phantom X. I couldn't tell you because at the end of the day, I really don't care. Um, And the story didn't make me want to either. And like I said, this is a Chris problem. If Phantom X is a character that you dig, you're going to like this. I don't, so I didn't. Though, as mentioned, it, it is very, 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 very pretty to look at. And I do appreciate some of the things they did here. Tying Phantom X into Marvel history, I appreciate that. I'm, a, I'm always a fan of adding lore layers, right? Having him work alongside the Howling Commandos and the Hellfire Club, it doesn't break any of the toys, right? It works well. You can put him in there. It's not contradicting anything that came before. It's not a everything you thought you knew is wrong. It's, it's very benign stuff. Uh, the group of rejects, though, the Humungonauts, You know me. Anytime I feel like a writer's going for the low-effort, cheap pop, I tune out. I mean, we have a character named Mohawk Person. This is up there with, like, look at me, look at me, explodey boy. You know, please retumble my pages. Not a fan of that kind of stuff. Um, Overall, though, as an artist showcase, they don't get much better than this. Uh, As a story, your mileage will vary, probably. You'll probably enjoy this more than I did. Uh, We finally seem to remember the point of these giant-sized issues, which is to say we were reminded that Storm is sick and dying. And this is our fourth such giant-sized book, and only the second time we're hearing about it. You know, the first outside of the actual first, you know, uh, when it actually went down. This is the first time we're hearing about it since then. So hopefully, you weren't spending $5 a pop on these, hoping to get bits and pieces on that storyline throughout. 
Or hell, I mean, maybe Emma's New Island and Lady Mastermind will figure prominently in the fifth and thankfully final giant size issue. Maybe this is all going to come together beautifully. I don't know. Now, despite the fact that this feels very much to me like Baby's first Grant Morrison comic, I can't not recommend it simply due to the strength of the art. And yes, like I said, Reese's work is worth every bit of your five American dollars, if not a bit more. So get this book, look at this book, and hopefully you'll enjoy this book a little bit more than I did. I don't care for Phantom X. He's uh, one of those misses for me from the Morrison run. Thankfully, he's got a cool design and a chaotic enough world that uh, Rod Reese was able just to kick ass in. So, for that much, I'm thankful. But uh, for the story, eh, what are you going to do? Now, before we hop into the mailbag, let me do our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 10 power rankings, which I neglected to do when we talked about X-Men number 10. I totally forgot it. So, uh, let's do that right now. And it took a little bit of doing because it's been a little while since we looked at these. I had to reread some notes and uh, try to remember what happened in each of these issues here. And when I did so, the results were a little surprising. They were actually quite surprising because my number one book of the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 10s was Excalibur. How in the world did that happen? Excalibur number 10 was my best. From here, we go to Marauders number 10, which only slipped because it felt a little fillery. Still a strong issue, but definitely an exercise in treading water till they got to uh, the lead-up to X of 10s. Definitely just filler. Um, And also, that was one of the few... I think that was the first Dawn of X book to come out following the COVID hiatus. So I think uh, things were kind of wobbly at that point. I think we were already supposed to be kind of deep into X of Tens at that point, calendar-wise. So I think it was just a lot of uh, trying to figure out where things are, trying to figure out and calibrate where things were going to go. So really not a fault of the book so much, uh, just kind of a victim of circumstance. That said, I did enjoy Excalibur more than that. Third book was X-Force, which wrapped up our Terra Verde stuff. Then fourth book, New Mutants, which wrapped up our Carnelia stuff. Fifth book was a book I hated, X-Men number 10, where uh, we tied into Empire and uh, got drunk. Just another really, really bad issue of X-Men Volume 5. But uh, very strange, very strange going back and looking at these things. Uh, So again... One, Excalibur, two, Marauders, three, X-Force, four, New Mutants, and five, X-Men. I I look forward to hearing your guys' power rankings. If you are uh, participating, I'd uh, be interested in hearing your thoughts. Uh, Now, with that out of the way, let's head into the mailbag here. I got a bunch of mail piled up from uh, the little uh, week hiatus that we took looking at Christmas stories, but I'm not going to just throw it all in here. I'm going to space it out as best I can here as to not... uh, well, first is to not just blow through them all, and second, to uh, to give them the proper time that they deserve. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing Empire colon X-Men number one. He says, this is terrible. <laughs> the comic, not the podcast. You're still great, Chris. Well, thank you. The principal problem is the Scarlet Witch. She's been utterly ruined as a character, probably starting from Burns' West Coast Avengers run, and progressively getting worse every time they tried to fix her. They took the most interconnected and familial of the Avengers and separated her from everyone else, therefore removing her unique selling point. 
Then they hobbled her further by removing her mutant identity for exceptionally stupid reasons. Bringing her back into the X-Men immediately damages the story. Now, for me, um, the Scarlet Witch has long been a case of, like, if it's not broke, fix it anyway, right? Uh, even going back as far as, like you said, that Burn West Coast run. I agree, I don't think she's ever recovered from that, and every attempt to fix her has only made things worse. Um, she's kind of like the Hawkman of the Marvel Universe, minus all the continuity gaffes. Actually, maybe she's more of like the Donna Troy or Wally West of the Marvel Universe. Just a very inconvenient character that nobody seems all that interested in getting right. It's just kind of a... she's like a device. Um, and this might just be a Chris thing, but there's also this weird feeling of smugness every time I see her on panel. And again, I'm projecting, I'm sure of it. It's as though her entire existence uh, during, you know... The 21st century can be distilled down as a giant middle finger from Marvel to X-Men fans. Also, you know, for fans, for any fans who dare to actually value characters over creators, you know, um, I mean, this very story with Scarlet Witch is leaning back into a Brian Bendis cluster frig where he twisted a character to suit his story. That's what we've seen ever since, too. That was kind of the, uh, you know, the... Priming the pump here for everything to come after that. Mark Miller just bending half the Marvel Universe so so that Civil War could work, you know. And, and you know they destroy these characters or they break these characters and they're, then they just leave, they just go away. I mean now Bendis is gone. He destroyed the Scarlet Witch and now he's gone. And now he's over at DC needlessly and irreparably screwing up Superman. And when he's done with that, he'll go somewhere else. And he'll be welcomed wherever he's going to go with open arms. It's it's a shame. It's a real shame. Damien continues. Unless they're going to do a story where it's revealed that she really is Magneto's daughter, but she dies protecting mutants without knowing and is resurrected back into the mutant family, I can't see a story that could rescue her. And yeah, that'll never happen, unfortunately. Uh, and the only way it could happen, the you know, the first part of, uh, of your uh, suggestion... Is if they decide that Magneto isn't a mutant And never was <laughs> Which I probably shouldn't even put that out into the universe Should I? Because it could happen Damien continues Creating an angry zombie, zombie army Is probably the stupidest thing that Wanda has ever been given to do And yeah, I just don't understand the thinking here Does she not know about the resurrection protocols? She can't be that out to lunch, right? I mean, that's kind of the one of the bigger things going on in. Maybe it's just because I only read the Marvels, the 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 X Men stuff. <laughs> maybe that's why I think it's important. Maybe in the other books, it's nothing. But uh, or in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. But you'd think you'd think she'd know. Damien continues. As for the alien invasion, it's clear that the X books couldn't ignore Empire. Alien plants invading Earth inevitably would cross into current X-Men territory, but I can't help fe- but it can't help feeling stale when we spent so much of the Hox Pox Docs era on space stories. This is compounded by using a weird team of characters. I presume Hickman wanted to use people who weren't focal in his current plans, but it ends up feeling like an afterthought or a random pick of names from a hat. And yes, the space Space stuff. Uh, I want to use a different S-word for that, but uh, I'm trying my best. I'm biting my tongue. The space stuff. Uh, Fatigue is definitely real. And uh, yeah, you're 100% right that this sort of invasion does, unfortunately, cross into X-territory. 
And, you know, maybe if all of our Dawn of Xbox weren't already focused on space stuff, maybe it would have landed a little bit better. Um, it was just more of the same, though. And what's more, it was far worse than the stuff that's already boring me in the Dawn of Xbox. You know, this was worse than the Brood Invasion that we just read in X-Men Volume 5, which I hated, but this was worse than that. I mean, is this just Marvel now? For folks who venture outside the Xbox... Is every single Marvel book just heroes dealing with lazy space stuff? Like, are we still that taken from, like, lol, Thanos snaps his fingers, so everything now has to be an outer space thing? Is Do we even do street level anymore? If so, I mean, please, please recommend me a book to read where we just have heroes on Earth, dealing with things on Earth. No pseudoscience, no high concept, no aliens, just... I mean, maybe I just need to read Punisher, but maybe even Punisher's cosmic now. Who knows? But uh, street-level stuff. If you know anything good, please help your humble host out. Uh, Now, Damien continues. I must admit that I didn't read this as closely as I do some other titles, but did I miss how zombies got from Genosha to Wakanda? Based on the map and on the info page, they would have had to travel hundreds of miles through a heavily populated region of Africa. Are we to believe that no one noticed an army of zombies invading a continent? And I only include this bit of Damien's message because I had the same questions. Uh, because I, too, kind of skimmed this one the first time through, but I do read these things a number of times before I start writing about them. And my first read through the issue, I was like, wait, how did they get from one to the other? And, uh, and that is because it is very awkwardly depicted. My second read through is like, okay, I still don't get it. And then it's like... As I'm writing my script, I'm finding that it doesn't make much sense. It's like, we're on Genosha, then Wakanda, but then we're back in Genosha again. How did this happen? And, and I've seen Damien's follow-up email to this, so he, he got it sorted out just like I did. They were never in Wakanda. They were planning on going to Wakanda, but they landed on Genosha to scout it out. And I had to actually edit my notes for this episode during my you know second and third read-through because I thought they were in Wakanda too. I just didn't know what... It's very, very awkwardly done. You would think with the amount of editors they have on these things, it would be a little bit smoother to read. But, but yes, it was quite confusing. Quite confusing. Now, Damien continues. I basically walked away from this issue feeling angry. Not at being conned into buying it because I read it on Marvel Unlimited, but at the slapdash nature of the thing. All the people involved can do better. And it's true. Uh, what it comes down to is that uh, this was half-assed. And half-assed might actually be giving it too much credit. Because as we work through this, it's what? There's like seven writers on these four issues. It's like, I think there's three. There's Hickman. Then there's three on issue two and another three on issue three. And then we go back to Hickman. So we have seven writers for this cash-in story. That means nothing. So very much a an afterthought and half-assed. Uh, Damien continues. The art was good. I should probably mention that. And yes, it was. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I almost feel resentful that I have to read another three issues of this crap. But I love your podcast, and getting to be a part of it through commenting is such great fun, so I'll survive. And yes, by now I've read Damien's uh, next three missives, and uh, they're very, very good, and I look forward to sharing them uh, as we continue along here. But uh, thank you so much for putting yourself through Empire for the show. 
<laughs> I, uh, I commend you and I thank you sincerely. So thank you so, so much. Uh, next, uh, Jesse DeJong is talking about cable number two and Empire X-Men. Jesse says, I have just a few things about wrapping up Empire X-Men cable number two. First off, in cable number two, if you didn't notice the interrogation room scenes that had both young Cable and Cyclops in, they're drawn almost identically. At first, I thought that Cyclops was just using Emma as kind of a conduit to see what Cable was up to, and that's why they were the same, but it does really seem like he went there, and Noto is just that clever of an artist. I like when things like this are slipped into comics for us to discover. And I didn't notice that. I I looked at it since then. I looked at it since getting this message, and uh, really, really cool stuff. I like that a lot. I didn't notice it, but uh, upon, upon reflection, very, very cool. Uh, Jesse continues Phil Noto is amazing as you've said His art for the Marvel's 80th anniversary Is the only comic poster I have in my office And except for a Scotty Young poster In the kids playroom This is the only comic related stuff That I'm allowed to have outside my comic room Do you have this kind of control with your other half? Are you limited in what you're allowed to display around the house? Anyway it's a beautiful poster And eventually I'll get it signed Hopefully I've been following Noto for over a decade now And his style just stands out I have no problem dropping money to give any story he's involved in a try. And uh, I, I don't own a whole lot of wall art. Uh, mostly uh, because I can't commit to actually putting anything up on a wall. I don't know what it is about me. I've got, sitting right next to me now, I've got my Action Comics 1000 poster where it has all 1000 covers on it, which I've got it framed, but it's just leaning against the wall right now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shaking it right now. It's just sitting here next to me. Uh, I've got some other framed stuff, uh, art prints, some autographed books, assorted ephemera. They're just sitting in a stack. Um, so I don't know if the wife would uh, would <laughs> get annoyed at me trying. I, I've never tried. <laughs> I just uh, Commitment is a big problem for me, even just hanging something on a wall. It's very bizarre. Jesse continues. The sandwich scene is so fun. Give me more of that. And Absolutely. I love that uh, it wasn't dwelled on. You know, a Cyclops went to went to Philadelphia. He got himself a cheesesteak at the you know at the suggestion of uh, the officers. And the next scene, he's just eating a sandwich. It's just there. I feel like a lesser writer would have made the entire scene into a big sandwich gag. And thankfully, that's not what we got. It was just a, a cute little thing. It was fun. Uh, Jesse continues. I think you also brought up the Reserve X-Men, Pauly, Provenzano, Sunpire, and Wraith, and asked what happened to those characters in this episode. I know that Paul died in the Weapon X title when it was about mutants and death camps. I believe he was put in a gas chamber or something along with top X-Men characters Maggot and Sienna Blaze. Sunpire, I also believe, died at some point. I want to say in the X-Core storyline with Banshee's Midlife Crisis. And Wraith, I'm pretty sure, was depowered on M-Day. And the only one of those that I remember, I do remember Paulie dying, was it Wonderland or Neverland or whatever they call that camp in that horrid, horrid Weapon X series. Um, I remember Maggot being in that scene as well. I always look at that as being like one of Marvel's too cool for school eras, you know, where we all collectively decided that we were like too smart for some sillier characters or some off-center characters like Maggot. And uh, we were just... Killing people for the for the laughs and and to uh, make ourselves feel better, and I think that was one of those books that uh, was that Frank Thierry 
who everybody said got the gig because he was Joe Quesada's friend. Because, I mean, all of a sudden, we went from having, like, zero Frank Thierry books to, like, six every month. Like, out of nowhere. It's very, very bizarre. Very strange times. Very strange times. And so strange that we thought we were so enlightened back then. Odd. Jesse continues. Speaking about M-Day, you've brought up this event a few times and your dislike of it. I actually loved this storyline, and I was disappointed when the lights started popping up in Generation Hope. And yeah, I was not a fan of M-Day. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with my knowing, or, or my refusing to let go of knowing how the sausage is made, because we all know how the sausage is made, right? We, I mean, I'm not an insider by any stretch of the imagination. We know that this was an edict, and we know that this was... Joe Quesada kind of throwing a temper tantrum because Grant Morrison went back to D.C. And so he was trying to undo everything Grant did. So that's part of my problem with it. I didn't so much mind the lights, but I thought they the way they went about doing it was kind of out of nowhere. Very like anticlimactic, underwhelming. Uh, we spent like, what, five or six years trying to solve the problem. And it was only like... You remember how in the 90s, the legacy virus was the big thing. You know, it was kind of this thing that just bubbled in the background forever. And only really got a mention when they when they remembered it. I felt like that's what the whole decimation era was was about for the the aughts or the 20, the 2000s, I guess. It was that storyline that kind of just bubbled. And like maybe every three or four months, you'd get a scene of Beast in his lab saying like, oh, I got to figure out how to, what I'm doing here. You know, just like with the legacy virus during the decade prior, it was just a thing that was just never going to get solved. And then when it got solved, it was just, you know, quick as a cricket, just done. You know, we uh, a switch flipped and it was fixed. And it was like, wait, what? You know, and that, that's, you know, the legacy virus was cured when Colossus sacrificed himself. And here it was just like, oh, mutants are born. <laughs> We're done. We're everything's fixed now. And I mean, right now. We're almost right back to those those Morrison-era numbers. Now, Jesse continues. I thought that the mutant verse was getting too large and that they were no longer a minority or special and that they'd become an everyday occurrence. I liked having the 198, and with the death of every mutant, it was like the X-Men were losing the battle. They were each special and became more so as time went on. Beast tried and tried but could not fix the problem. I really liked that storyline, too. With the Phoenix Five and the Resurrection Protocols, being a mutant isn't special anymore. There are hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of them. When everyone is special, then no one is special. And yes, I agree, totally. There's a lot of truth to that. And um, I think a lot of this goes back to uh, Marvel Editorial being a little too loosey-goosey with their superstar creators. I mean, I'm on record as loving Grant Morrison's run on, on the X-Books. But you're 100% right. There should have never been that many mutants introduced all at once. Being a mutant was no longer special. There was nothing unique about it. From there, we go to the Academy X era where, I mean, they had like a half dozen squads of young mutant heroes. It makes me wonder if Morrison, in the back of his mind, had a way of putting that genie back in the bottle. Or was he just hanging Marvel with all the rope they gave him? It seems weird, right? I mean, you think back to, you know, Claremont doing the Mutant Massacre. And the reason, one of the reasons he did that is because he thought there were too many mutants. And there were only, like, 50. 
you know, uh, around the time where Claremont left and John Byrne came back on as a scripter for a few issues. He wanted to do a second mutant massacre because he thought there were too many mutants and there were probably like 75. Now we're in the millions. And it's uh, it's pretty ridiculous. And I mean, this might sound old-fashioned. It might make me sound like I'm 10 years older than I actually am. But I feel like we really need someone like a Jim Shooter to guide and like steward these characters and properties because there really is no rhyme or reason to things anymore. And we're at a point where, where it isn't unusual to have a half dozen editors credited on a single book. And there's somehow less quality control than back when Marv Wolfman was editing his own work. I mean, how many editors were credited on Crisis on Infinite Earths? I mean, one of the biggest stories ever told. How many editors were on that? Compare that with how many editors are credited on a four-panel Harley Davidson ad on the back cover of a Marvel comic where there are three or four editors on a four-panel Harley-Davidson ad. Uh, These are all avoidable situations, but I feel like we're too busy building mousetraps that we don't have the time or interest to seeing if they can actually catch any mice. We're just building. We're not actually... We're not actually seeing if there's any results here. It's very... It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Jesse continues... I also liked Wanda being haunted by her mistakes and wanting to fix them. Yeah, it's starting to get old, but I thought the idea of her making things even worse in Empire X-Men was interesting. I wish they would have focused more on that and not the generic alien invasion. I see why Marvel wanted the X-Men involved in a plant-based lifeform invasion, but it didn't have to be so blah. I'm also just waiting for Marvel to come out and say that Namor is no longer a mutant, along with the reveals of Franklin Richards, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Cloak, and Dagger all not being mutants. It's almost like mutants a dirty word. Yeah, remember when Alex's speech in Uncanny Avengers about how mutants a dirty word? Oh, someday you will hear my thoughts on Alex Summers. And yes, as much as much disdain as I have for Wanda and use of Wanda in stories like this, you're right. Uh, had they focused more on her instead of the generic veg-type aliens, this might have been a better story. I mean, it couldn't be a worse story, right? <laughs> it really couldn't have been. Unfortunately, I think that would require different editorial fiefdoms or fiefdoms to work closely together. And at least in theory, you know, I think we've seen that that there really isn't all that much communication between them these days. Uh, Which is probably yet another reason why we we need us a Jim Shooter. We just don't deserve us a Jim Shooter. Uh, I was actually unaware that they retconned Cloak and Dagger as not being mutants. That's news to me, though... I guess with a Netflix cash-in or a Hulu cash-in or whoever whoever they're cashing in with, they'd probably need to disassociate them from the X-Line. It's kind of pathetic, and uh, you're right. I'm actually surprised that Namor hasn't already been declared non-mutants. Non-mutant, because that's almost got to be coming, right? That's... I don't know if they have a Namor movie in the works or a Namor... Do they still do Netflix shows? Maybe we have a, a Submariner Netflix show? Who knows? But, uh... I have a feeling that if that if and when that does happen, yeah, he will no longer be a mutant. He'll be just pure Atlantean or whatever. And I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on, on Havoc. I definitely do. Jesse continues. And to finish this off, I'm glad you liked how Explody Boy's story ended. I had told you before that in issue four, he'll have some redemption, and I couldn't wait to hear your feelings on it. 
I think maybe the living Explody Boy was supposed to blow up the bulb thing, but the undead one took the sacrifice for him. I have no idea how his powers work. Yes, he has a stupid name, but not everyone can have awesome names like Maggot, Sprite, or I Boy. <laughs> very, very true. What I don't understand is if, uh, if the living Explody Boy was supposed to blow up the bulb, like, are we just fully engaging in suicide missions now? Like, did Beast strap that rocket to him and say, hey, go die? You know, is that... It feels like we're taking advantage of the resurrection protocols and also just not valuing life at all, you know? Very strange, but also, I could totally see it. I could totally see it. Um, Not a fan of that. And, I mean, we've talked about how devalued life is and how devalued reactions to death are. In these books, but yeah, definitely not a fan of that. Um, Jesse wraps up with Before I go, I want to express my absolute thanks for Cosmic Treadmill episode 121 about Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer from December 2018. It's become a yearly tradition for me to listen to that episode, and it makes me laugh every time I listen. So thank you, and thanks to Reggie. Have a wonderful holiday. That made my day. Um, thank you. Uh, that Rudolph episode is one. I mean, we've we've Reggie and I did hundreds of episodes of different programs together. I I still remember the Rudolph episode because it was a very special one. Um, I've talked about listening to Christmas podcasts and watching Christmas programs on TV and stuff, and it's just something I do. I mean, there's a website called uh, BetaMaximus.com where it's basically like an aggregate of uh, various Christmas YouTube videos. Like, it could be a compilation of Christmas commercials, it could be the the He-Man, She-Ra holiday special, it could be an Inspector Gadget Christmas. And I'll put that on in the background any time of year, because I just love the feeling of that, uh, of Christmas, any time of year. And... I remember listening to people's programs, people's podcasts that were Christmas episodes, and I would listen to them any time of year. So when I was working over the road, and it would be like the middle of July, and I'd pull on, I'd throw on an episode of whatever podcast's Christmas show, I'd be sitting in my car, uh, getting ready to do a job. It would be 120 degrees outside, and yet I'm listening to a group of people talk about Christmas and their and their gifts and uh, the season. And it always got me into that mood. It got me into that sort of feeling. And then Reggie and I did a couple of Christmas episodes that I feel didn't capture that spirit. Uh, we did the the Christmas with the Superheroes DC special. We did an Ambush Bug, the Christmas special, uh, the Stocking Stuffer. And they were fun episodes, but they didn't make me feel like I was there. You know, I wasn't... In that mode With Rudolph though Oh man, that one was just so special And it felt so It felt like I was part of something special With that episode I still We recorded it on the Sunday The Saturday morning Before Christmas I believe And I had to run to the store beforehand So I had to rush to get all all some, some stuff Some last minute shopping in And then got back like just in the nick of time to do that recording, and uh, 
it was one where it, like it transcended an episode. So I'm so happy that you that you enjoy that episode and that you listen to it uh, every year. That that means so much to me because there are certain things that I do every year as part of my my Christmas ritual and uh, as just getting ready for the season and just the, the things I need to check off. It's like I need to do this, this, and watch this and listen to that, and it's. To be a part of that really, really means the world to me, and uh, and I, I definitely appreciate that. So thank you so, so much. And that's where we're going to put a, a button in the mailbag for now. We still have plenty of messages to talk about, and we will cover those over the next handful of episodes. I'm really looking forward to digging back into the mailbag and sharing some, some very thoughtful uh, commentary. So... Look forward to that. But uh, if anybody would like to reach out, please feel free to do so. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. There's also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can talk with us about whatever you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to whatever you want at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. That's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you so much for uh, for listening and being a part of this with me. And uh, it's it's nice to be back. I think uh, the week off did me a lot of good, even though I wasn't the hugest fan of this issue. But uh, we do have Marauders coming up, and that very rarely um, disappoints. So looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. One more giant thank you for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 107 of X-Lapsed, where hopefully for the last time we're going to be covering a giant size issue of X-Men here. Uh, let's get right into it. we got a lot to talk about today. This is Giant Size X-Men Storm, number one, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story's called Disintegration, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Russell Dodderman. 
Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, B. So White Zabalski. Cover price, $5. Went on sale September 16th of 2020. Alrighty, well, we open by flashing back to what brought us here in the first place. Uh, if you all remember, uh, that techno-organic virus has been ravaging Storm's body. Though, uh, I guess if you were... If you missed only two issues from the entire Dawn of X run, uh, you might not know that, because it's only mentioned in this and two other issues. Now, it's worth noting, we covered the issue where the virus was uh, discovered as being a thing back in episode 51 of the show. I mean, it's episode 107, so that's a long-ass time ago. It's also worth noting that the this techno-organic virus that is ravaging Storm's body is not the same sort that exhibit in the phalanx or even cable. So this is a whole nother boring strain of it. So, here we are with Jean and Emma. They're chatting up our sickly Storm. Now, Emma suggests that Storm just uh, quit fighting. Just allow herself to die. After all, she'll be back lickety-split, right? Now, Jean is completely repulsed by this idea, and rightfully so, right? But, thankfully, she doesn't mention that she herself dies all the time, right? Because we've talked about that low-effort sort of stuff here before, haven't we? And, thankfully, they sidestepped it this time out. Now, the ladies are interrupted by the arrival of Monet, who's got an idea on how Storm might be saved. First, double-page spread of creds, followed by our roll-call page. We're going to be focusing on Storm, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, Monet, Cypher, and Phantom X. We jump ahead to later, as Doug and Monet are looking for someone. And it's someone who we already met during the last Giant Size issue, but what are you going to do? Now, they break into Ned the AIM Beekeeper's house because, well, they need to get access to the world, and I guess they know he knows how to do such a thing. Now, he's shocked to see them because he's expecting Phantom X. And, uh, and to be fair, they yanked his door right off its hinges, so that's a little surprising. Now, he also makes some cute comments about how Phantom X is paying him to, quote, double-cross his super-evil science organization, which I'm sure caused somebody on social media to wet themselves in delight, because... Ugh, okay. Now, we jump ahead to Phantom X's arrival, and we get another too-cute-by-half scene, during which he and Monet haggle over how much the X-Men are going to have to pay in order to get into the world. Finally, Storm's had enough, as have I, and we get this story moving. Now, the scene isn't near as funny as I think it's supposed to be, but it's Russell Dottoman, so it's beautiful to look at nonetheless. So, Ned the Beekeeper plops a coin into a wall, which I suppose is an entry point into the world, and our team steps on in. Now, the world, as boring as I find it, looks really, really cool under Dottoman's pencils and inks. Now, there's this weirdly shaped place in the distance which appears to be under attack by these strange eyeball monsters that are flying around and blasting it. And naturally, this is the exact place that our team must go in order to rid Storm of her virus. So bada-bing, bada-boom, it's fight time. We get to see Doug enrobed in warlock skin, which is pretty cool. He's, you know, how he usually has the warlock arm, right? Now he's just totally covered in the techno-organic mesh. Uh, Monet penances up, which... I still don't care for, but I guess I should probably just accept. Then Storm uses her powers to sweep away the rest of the eyeball beasts with a great wind. Then Phantom X's brother shows up and kind of just stands there. 
Ned loads Storm into a machine to begin the separation process. Then the eyeball cavalry arrives on the scene to uh, try to get rid of our X-Men here. Monet tries to hold them off, but cannot. Thankfully, though, just as the baddies arrive at the machine, a fully healed Storm emerges from it. She then, I assume, takes care of the beasts. Uh, We don't really get to see a whole lot of it, but we gotta figure that's what happened. Now, as the dust settles, the machine starts to act up a little bit. And so, Ned sprays a weird mist onto it, which seemingly collects all the techno-organic hoodoo and solidifies it into a small... I don't know, it looks like a chess piece. Maybe it's a chess piece, I don't know. Phantom X asks his brother if he's ready to leave the world. Naturally, he's not. He plainly states that he's never gonna leave. And so, Phantom X agrees to remain here with him. Not only that, but Ned, the AIM beekeeper, decides to stay in the world as well. You ask me, these are both value-added moves. If we never see either of these guys again, it'd be too soon. Now, just as the X-Men go to leave, Doug notices something about the weird chess piece. He realizes that it's sentient, alive. It speaks to him in a language we don't understand, but he probably does. And he tells it that he'll, uh, he'll see it around. And that's that. Next episode, the other half of our X of Tens Part Zero, and the final Dawn of X Wave 1 number 12, it's X-Men. But let's talk about this giant size issue here, shall we? And uh, there's going to be some vamping involved, because uh, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say, right? But would you believe that the issue we just looked at is a perfect issue? It totally is. The internet wouldn't lie. Well, maybe... The internet would lie for retweets and clicks, but that's beside the point. Now, this entire giant size endeavor, the five issues we covered here, it just screams page filler to me. And at 25 bucks for the lot of them, I think we need a little bit more than that. Um, I mean, hey, at least with this one, with Storm in the title, it is giant size X-Men Storm, we actually feature Storm. So it's got that going for it. We can't always guarantee that in these stories. What it also has going for it is the art, which is spectacular. And the only reason I'd ever tell any of you to spend your hard-earned money on this issue would be to own the art. Now, I ask you all here, um, does anything scream afterthought, like a potentially fatal plot thread for a major character being kept out of every book we see her in except for these? I mean, this is like X-Men Unlimited sort of stuff. And as loath as I am to begin a sentence with, quote, I think we can all agree, but I think we can all agree that X-Men Unlimited was unnecessary filler made to exploit completionists and squeeze every last dime out of a loyal readership. I tell you, recently I was on an episode of Source Material Live over at the uh, Rattledge and Broadcasting and W2M Networks. And we were talking about a recent Star Wars miniseries called Bounty Hunters. Now, let me just say this straight away. I have precious little interest in Star Wars. Really couldn't care less. That being said, I still view Star Wars as being this mythological story. You know, something that you would put on a pedestal. Among the best of the best as it pertains to science fiction, which might sound completely ridiculous to those more in the know, but... This is just the direction that I'm coming to this from. And so, we uh, read this Star Wars Bounty Hunters comic from Marvel not too long ago. I think it's 
I think it's still going on, uh, as a matter of fact. So it's very recent here. And we're reading this, and I was just gobsmacked as to how they would dilute the Star Wars product and franchise by putting out a series that, in my opinion, served no purpose, didn't need to be made. Then, in talking with my co-host for that episode, I learned that this is only the tip of the iceberg in as far as diluting the Star Wars name. And despite not being a fan of the property, you know, I liked the first three movies when I was younger, but that's about as far as my fandom went. So not being a fan of the property, I still felt as though I lost something in learning that they're just diluting the hell out of this property, this product. I was no longer, you know, the wide-eyed innocent I was just moments before, you know, holding this franchise in such high regard, or esteem, I guess, from afar. Uh, to having the far-too-late revelation that uh, these are nothing more than money machines, and Disney is just going to keep cranking that lever till it falls off. If I can relate this to our X-Books, with the post-Hoxpox X-Men, I was expecting an all-killer, no-filler approach, right? We're going to do this right. And I suppose my brief absence from all things Marvel may have restored a bit of my childlike naivete, or... Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, or maybe I have some sort of twisted disappointment fetish? I don't know. I'm taking the scenic route here, and I apologize, but I figured that everything that happened in this family of titles was going to build upon itself and actually matter. There wouldn't be exploitative titles. There wouldn't be a nouveau X-Men Unlimited book. I was wrong. We had Fallen Angels a book that hasn't been and probably never will be referred to since. We had Empire colon X-Men, which was a whole other thing. We've had a half-dozen meandering one-and-dones in X-Men Volume 5. And we've had these giant-sized series of books, which, in my opinion, are kind of the polar opposite of all killer, no filler, right? This is all filler, no killer. And, well, maybe... Maybe we can excuse these giant sizes as being the artist showcases... There's still no reason for them to exist as overpriced standalones. I mean, these could have been regularly, regularly priced issues of X-Men Volume 5. And if that were the case, we would have gotten them in quicker succession, and they would have felt more as though they actually mattered. I mean, Storm, one of the, one of the biggest characters in this entire X-Men property, was dying during this, and it's never mentioned anywhere, except for the Gene and Emma book, the Fandom X book, and this book. I mean, Storm is a major character in Marauders. They never mention the fact that, oh yeah, by the way, she's dying. We never heard anything except for these books. I, I mean, let's let's talk about that for just a second here, the Storm dying thing. I'm going to guess that this whole shebang kind of came out of Storm running into Serafina way back in X-Men number one. So, uh, and I hate to be a broken record, but why not just let this story play out in the pages of X-Men then? Maybe because Marvel wanted an extra 25 bones out of the, their most loyal consumers? I, I don't know. And again, I'm, I'm sorry for vamping here. There's just not a whole lot to say. Storm is sick. Monet knows about the world. They go to the world. They plop Storm into a machine. Bada-bing, we're done. You know, chop a buck off this issue, and I might be a little bit more forgiving. But for an overpriced and weirdly disjointed run 
of books like the giant-sized books have been, I can't recommend this, other than for the art. Which, I mean, these are the artist showcases, so that's probably the point overall, but uh, it is a gorgeous book. Russell Dodderman, phenomenal artist. Uh, Rod Reese in the last issue. I mean, if nothing else, these have been very, very nice to look at. Uh, let's go back to my wide-eyed innocence for just a minute here. Um, looking at the giant sizes as a cluster of books here, the five of them, I really thought that elements from the other giant size issues were going to come into play here. I thought there'd be something to do with Lady Mastermind, you know, who was rescued during that laughably mistitled giant size Nightcrawler issue, even though we already saw her arrive on Krakoa back during Hoxpox. Uh, I also thought maybe there'd be something to do with Emma's new sentinel-headed island. But nope. Nope to both. So disjointed, so unnecessary, just eh. I guess overall, this was a very, very nice book to look at. But as a story, wholly unnecessary. Um, your mileage may, and, and hopefully does vary. I don't think we needed these books, and I will probably never look at them again. Um... Now, just a few episodes to go till we hit exit 10s, so let's hope that I don't decide to bust out a merry X-lapsed in January week between then and now just to survive the trip there. Fingers crossed that uh, it'll be smooth sailing from this point on. But uh, that's all I got to say about this giant size issue. Apologies for being negative if you find them being overly negative. I just uh, don't see a reason for these to exist the way they are. But uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed them better than I did. Let's hop into the mailbag here, which, uh, hey, if you have any uh, you know thoughts on these issues, please feel free to write in and we'll cover it in the mailbag. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Factor number two. Uh, now, Damien says, It's interesting to me that you rated X-Factor number one higher than me, and I rated number two higher than you. I suppose it shows that Chris problems and Damien problems are two different beasts. What I liked about this issue was the focus on characters. The way they interact with each other and their reactions to the Mojoverse were revelatory. I find myself returning to the theory that Krakoa is removing inhibitions. It was one of our big theories surrounding the Crucible and also came up in discussing the Scott-Jean-Logan relationship and the reactions to death and resurrections. Maybe Leia Williams was told that the characters had fewer inhibitions and she's taking it to its logical conclusion with Dakin. Dakin. Uh, Damien votes Dakin but he has no idea how it should be pronounced either. Uh, Damien continues, Removing inhibitions from someone who is already uninhibited would cause the kind of behavior we see here. It would also explain the fact that the team are openly criticizing Dakin Dakin. Uh, they are not politely allowing him to do what he likes in his private life. That's definitely a theory I can buy into. And it just, it just kind of stinks that we need to, we need to concoct that you know, outside the book here. It's not clear in the book that that's why the characters are acting this way. It's It certainly makes sense, but it makes me feel like we're doing the job of the writer here. We're writing these stories now. We're making... We're filling in the blanks that really shouldn't be left blank. Um, you know, part of me can't shake the feeling as though much of this volume of X-Factor is being written for a very, very specific audience, for the most part. And that audience is, like, Leia Williams' Twitter followers and uh, the legit or connected internet comics reviewers. Now, this X-Factor number 2 was one issue where I actually decided to subject myself to the comic book reviewer aggregate, simply because I came away with it with such a strong distaste, right? 
I suppose I just wanted to see where my thoughts stood alongside the rest. You know, sometimes you... Not for validation so much, but to maybe educate myself a little more. Maybe to see if I am being too hard on a book. Because when I when I dislike a book to the point that I really didn't care for this issue, it bothers me. Because I, I worry that I'm overreacting. I'm always going to take someone else's opinion as being more valid than my own. I mean, there are people listening to this right now who I conferred with after reading X-Factor number two to be like, hey, what did you think? You know, just because I wasn't sure I wanted to be so negative about it. And if I could be helped in any way to see it a different way, I was going to take it. So I went to the comic book reviewer aggregation site, and the X-Factor number two page looked like far too many Rotten Tomatoes pages that we see these days. You know, the paid-for critics who likely got the issue comped by Marvel and would like to keep getting issues comped by Marvel all rated it extremely high. While the commoners, like myself, who most likely paid the four bucks for the thing, rated it extremely low. And trust me when I say, Marvel and DC do reward for better-than-good reviews, and they do threaten to punish and withhold swag for less-than-stellar reviews. Trust me when I say that. And I mean, I get different strokes for different folks. And we all have our preferences. But when I see stuff like that, where the folks who are getting the free stuff are saying it's great, and the people who aren't are saying, eh, maybe not, I become suspicious of the integrity of reviews. On both sides. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not pointing fingers to one side or the other. With as many, in my opinion, phony 10 out of 10 scores that there are, I'm sure there are people out there just review-bombing the things to in their minds, level the playing field, right? So the tens and the zeros, you get rid of those. Hell, you know, get rid of the anything below a three and get rid of the nines and tens. That's where your truth is going to be. That's where your honest reviewers, in my opinion, are going to be located. Now, Damien continues. Another element I really liked in the story was the sense of place. You get a clear idea of how it feels to enter the boneyard and how the space operates. Following Aurora as she enters a building works very well. Again, when they get to Mojo World, we get to see how buildings relate to each other, and you can clearly see their progress or lack of, or lack of towards Spiral. Very good points. Very good points here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the art here, because on second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many looks I gave this, um, the art is starting to win me over a bit. The art is starting to win me over. Um, Damien continues here, I also loved the art. I find David Baldion's work so expressive of character, and I think he does a great job of making the different characters distinctive. It's interesting that during Mary X lapsed, you were enthusiastic about Joe Majuara, but you seem to find Baldion's style too much. I think he fits the material so well. Can you imagine Lionel U drawing this? <laughs> it would fail on every level. Yeah, I don't want to see Lionel U draw this. I sure don't. Um, no, I'm, I am coming around on David Baldion's style here. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, what is that, what is that saying I'm looking for here? Uh, maybe an acquired taste? I don't know. Um, I will say it's probably not for everyone because it is, it is different. It is stylized, right? That's the word we use, stylized. But I am coming around to it here. I do wish he would stop with the roll eyes on everybody. I mean, everybody's rolling their eyes constantly in this book. But uh, I am coming around to it. I am coming around to it. Uh, Damien continues with, It's also great to see the beginning of a personality being, being given to Northstar's husband. 
His reaction to seeing Aurora resurrected is the most depth I've ever seen from him. Sad but true, right? I mean, it's such a shame, looking back, that Marvel felt the need to rush the romance and relationship between North Star and Kyle. I think his name was Kyle. Uh, like they did. I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely all about beating DC to the punch. But still, such a disservice to their relationship here. I mean, I, I did, we didn't need to see them go through a, a really long courtship and a long engagement. But give us something. Give us something here. Don't just say, here's a guy, okay, now they're married, bada-bing, bada-boom. I feel like they really, really just ignored uh, some very potentially special moments that we could have shared with this couple here. And to make it feel more organic, make it feel more real, and to let us all celebrate it. Instead, it was just like, okay, gotta, we gotta get to the ceremony so DC doesn't do it first. And that's just the way it was. But here we are, what, about 10 years later? And we're finally, I mean, we finally find out this guy's name. So there's that. <laughs> Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Dakin Dakin becomes celibate, make my next lapse, which I think is a very, very, very long time from now. So we're going to be riding these airwaves together for quite some time. And I couldn't be happier about that. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on. A very divisive issue, Damien. Uh, next, Evan Bevins uh, discussing another issue that I didn't like. I mean, this why do I still do this show? I feel like I hate everything. Do I hate everything? I hope not. Uh, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 10. Evan says, I'm not going to try to change your mind on X-Men number 10, because I pretty much agreed with you. Vulcan is a character I wish I'd never read about, mainly because his origin in X-Men Deadly Genesis felt to me as a parody of grim and gritty comics that was rejected for being too disturbing to be funny. I don't think I intentionally read anything with him until the latest X-Men number one, and I certainly groaned when I saw him there. I do have a bought-on-sale War, War of Kings trade I haven't read yet, but that had more to do with Darkhawk and the Guardians. Now, my history with Vulcan... It's a bit on the shallow side myself. Um, you all know me. If it has anything to do with Out of Space, I check out. So I didn't read War of Kings. I know I own the Emperor Vulcan miniseries that might be a part of that. I don't know. But that's only because I'm a completionist and an idiot. Uh, but I'm fairly certain I'll never actually sit down and read it. Now, outside of Deadly Genesis and the current year stuff, I want to say the only Vulcan I've read was during the... 675-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire by Ed Brubaker that ran in Uncanny X-Men probably, what, 15 years ago? Which, believe it or not, I think I actually sort of kind of enjoyed. It's been 15 years, but uh, when I think about it, I don't wince or cringe, so that's a good thing. Evan continues. X-Men number 10 felt like it could have been told in eight pages. Yes. But it was the first time in limited exposure I didn't actively dislike Vulcan. The idea that he wants to be better than what he's been, that has potential, especially since I do dislike what he's been, I so dislike what he's been. And Petra and Sway have potential as well. The mutants drinking, uh, drinking heavily bit is very much overdone, but I can understand it with these two more than most. Krakoa may offer a clean slate, but these are two mutants who died on their very first mission, on Krakoa no less. Their teammates survived and eventually became X-Men, Darwin more or less, and an intergalactic emperor. Their new homeland is the place that killed them, and their only connection to anyone is hanging out at the Summer House, because one of their only friends is related to the Big Shots. 
That didn't come across in the story at all, and given that AA meetings on Krakoa must be packed, their boozing doesn't stand out. They're forgettable characters, and this is coming from a guy who recognized Lifeguard in X-Force number 9. But they are in story too. I don't care for the issue, but maybe these pieces could be better used in the future. All very good points. And, I mean, just like we were talking about with the inhibitions in X-Factor, had this been better explained in the issue itself, and not just by using our own headcanon to make it make sense of it, I'd probably come away with it with a, you know, with a better taste in my mouth. But we don't get that sort of explanation here. We're left to use... Uh, we're, we're left to formulate these stories and fill in the blanks ourselves here. We... It's left to us to add pathos, right? And to make this boozing session stand out as something different from the Skate 800 other boozing sessions we've seen on Krakoa since Dawn of X began here. This just seems like more drunk mutants, which I, I don't need to see. Had their troubles been explored a little bit better... Had we drawn that line there, it's like, okay, we're living, we're, we're, we're all living because of the island that killed us, right? The enti- our entire people are wrapped up in the thing that killed us our first time out. Give us that stuff. You know, give us a little bit of that. Don't, don't leave it to us to fill in the blanks here. And maybe, maybe cool it with the drunk mutants, because if we didn't get drunk mutants every time out, maybe this scene would have meant something. Maybe we would have been like, wow, why are they drinking? Why are they self-medicating? Why are they doing that? And it would have been a little bit easier to uh, to see it as something novel and different and, and worth paying attention to, where instead it's just like, hey, there's two more mutants with a blender. Oh boy, here we go. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that very divisive issue there, Evan. Uh, next up, a less divisive issue, but... Perhaps some interesting food for thought in the next couple of emails we have here. First, Andrew in Belfast is going to share some thoughts about Exlapsedination, which is our Sunday special show running right now where we look at the Extermination miniseries uh, that came out in 2018 or so that allegedly sends the original five time-displaced mutants back to where they came from, wherever it was that they did come from. We'll find out as we work our way through here. Now, Andrew says, I hope all's well with you. I've been blazing through a week's worth of back issues from the podcast and wanted to drop you a quick line on the topic of the Extermination miniseries. In the show, you commented on the time travel possibilities and the story issues thrown up by the return of the young X-Men back to their original timeline. Although I'm really not a fan of comic book movies, they never come close to the comic book art form for me, your comics did remind me of that scene in Avengers Endgame where the flaws in most time travel fiction were pointed out to Ant-Man, and he utters my six-year-old's favorite taboo line of, So Back to the Future was just a bunch of BS? <laughs> now, if you're not listening to Exlapsedination, now one of the ideas I floated there was, what if Brian Bendis' original plan for the original five was to use them as a sort of in-story device to give the present-day X-Men a sort of reboot. Like, the time-displaced original five, they arrive in the present, right? Right after Avengers vs. X-Men. While here, they learn everything that happens to them. Everything that's going to happen to them in the interim, from the time they were yanked to present day. Then, they go back to the past with all that knowledge. And perhaps, they make some different decisions, because they're educated on what's going to happen... 
And those decisions might then be reflected in the present-day books, if you follow. Like, if a young Jean knows that she doesn't actually become the Phoenix, what would happen? Now, if Jean doesn't die, does Scott meet and marry Madeline Pryor? Does she get pregnant? Does she give birth to baby Nathan? How would things like that make the current year books look? Stuff like that. That's the that's the question that I floated out there, and that's something I'd love to discuss further because it's there's a lot of possibilities there, right? Uh, Andrew continues. You're right, though. We can, I think, only assume that our original team is, is time-sliding back to the 60s era with full knowledge of the developments in X history. Maybe the fact that they're only informed of that history rather than living it means they aren't fully abreast of every development in detail. But it sure did, ma- did make me think about the time loop issues that could have possibly been used by Hickman to tee up his do-over of the X-verse in hindsight. Now there is the other reason I was so taken by this idea. Now, if you've been listening to X-Lapsed from the start, you'll know that I began this endeavor with a lot of trepidation. I was worried, probably too worried, about what was going to be booted from the X-Lore and what was going to be allowed to remain here. We have the the, the Ten Lives of Mora. Don't know if everything happened in the most recent one. Well, we, I, we didn't know back then, or I didn't know back then. And I did many, plenty of uh, like mental gymnastics trying to figure out which t- actual timeline we were working with. Of course, we're dealing with the actual one, right? But I didn't know that then, and I perhaps held on to those theories a bit too long. But sending these kids back could have been the catalyst for a big, huge change. Maybe a hox, pox, dox, rock, socks sort of change. Of course, it didn't go that way, but it could have. Andrew continues. My main reason for writing, though, is to highlight the fact that you may wish to throw issue three of the current series of champions into your dollar bin pile if you see it at your local comic shop. Because in that issue, founding member of the champions from the first Mark Wade series, then young Cyclops, comes to rescue his former champions as part of, the, of a Civil War-style storyline which sees their numbers being hunted down under a superhero registration-type storyline. The Cyclops that appears just in time to rescue his former teenage friends at the end of issue number three is the fully aged-up Cyclops who obviously still remembers the fact that in his young future displaced form, he was close colleagues with his now-persecuted teen teammates. So we know that there is a memory of the Bendis displaced teammates' time spent in the future that survives the time to travel back in time and their lived experiences to the present day. Ant-Man was right about that time travel storyline. Now, that I didn't know about. I didn't know that uh, the young Cyclops came back any time since, right? So we're gonna definitely going to have to track down uh, Champions number 3, and we'll, we will talk about it here. It'll depend whether or not it's going to get its own full episode, but we will definitely talk about it, because that sounds very intriguing, and I'd love to, he- I'd love to see exactly what this uh, formerly young, now-aged Cyclops from the past, future, past, present... Um, <clears throat> never mind, never mind. Andrew wraps up with, Anyway, just wanted to pop that thought down in an email before it evaporated from my tired dad brain. And until the verbose Leia Williams decides to opt for a silent giant size issue, <laughs> make my next lapsed. 
Well, thank you so much for letting us know about that issue of Champions, because that's not something that would be on my radar at any point. So uh, definitely going to keep an eye out for that so we can talk about that a little bit more. And for thoughts on the uh, X-Lapsed Nation uh, big question of what would happen if these original five were from the 616 timeline sent back to the past with all the knowledge of everything that happens, what decisions do they make? Do they make the same ones? And I I know there's all sorts... I'm not very good at time travel. So I know there's things like branching branching timelines. There's things like, no matter what you do, it's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen sort of approach. I don't know none of that. Uh, That's that's far above my pay grade and mental ability. So uh, I'd love to hear your theories. (laughs) And uh, we're going to talk about one right now with our friend Jeremiah talking about X-Lapsination. He says... Chris, I listened to the latest Extermination episode and found your what-if discussion to be very interesting. I have to agree that a story involving the original five from the past going back to their own time with their current knowledge and seeing the impact of that happening on the present or even recent past X-Men history would make for a good story. I enjoy what-if stories for the most part, and one I've always wondered about since I first heard about it, possibly on your show was what if Chris Claremont or some other writer had followed through on his original idea to use Sabretooth as Wolverine's father. I'm not saying it's a good idea, but it's just one that could be interesting if it's explored in some kind of what-if scenario. Now this one. This one's straight out of my wheelhouse. Uh, Because it was among the bigger comic shop scuttlebutt rumors when I came into the X-Fandom. And because of that, I've always kind of held it in, in fairly high regard. It's, you know, it was whose cable is, is Sabretooth Wolverine's father. We had a handful of mysteries as I was coming in. And those, you know, it's never as good as when you first show up, right? So those were the biggies. And there's still things that kind of tickle me. So this one actually has been explored further. And boy, howdy, do I wish it hadn't have been. There was a book called X-Men Forever. Well, there was a couple of books called X-Men Forever, but uh, one was an ongoing. First one was a uh, Avengers Forever-style story where it was kind of just playing with continuity. Fabian Niciesa wrote it. Um, it was a really fun time, probably right around the turn of the century. Then there was this ongoing, and uh, the ongoing here seems to have gone under a lot of folks' radars back in the day and now. Now, this book was the What If... Chris Claremont didn't leave the X-Books back in 1991 book. Which was more or less Marvel's answer to, hey, we've got Chris Claremont under contract, and as per the agreement, we need to have him writing two books per month. So where can we put him where he'll do the least amount of damage? And the answer was the twice-monthly X-Men Forever. And it wasn't great. In it, the Is Wolverine Sabretooth Sun storyline was revisited and fleshed out a great deal, and uh, it wasn't great. (laughs) Jeremiah continues, I think one of the problems with a character like Wolverine, Cable, or even the Joker, whose origin is never explained, is that it gets to the point where their past is a complete mystery, and then it becomes their gimmick. Then, when a writer or editor wants to draw a line in the sand and commit something to the character's backstory, I'm looking at you, whomever made the decision to give Logan bone claws, you end up with half of the fans thinking the addition or change is great, and another half who thinks it stinks. 100% true. 100% true. And again, 
I came into the X fandom where cloudy backstories were kind of the soup of the day, right? We knew bits and pieces about characters like Wolverine and Cable, and every so often we'd spot another breadcrumb on the trail. But they were just that. They were just breadcrumbs. They were hints. They were theory fodder. I think it was Stan Lee who said, never give the fans what they think they want, which is a train of thought we might need now more than ever before. Because uh, you're absolutely right. In drawing that line in the sand, yeah, it's hard to get that genie back in the bottle, right? There's not really an organic way of going back. Sometimes it's about placating a writer's ego, allowing them to be the one to define a character. Sometimes it's about beating Hollywood to the punch, as it allegedly was the case with uh, Origin, with Wolverine, right? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but in every in every situation, whether it works or not, we do lose something in the mystery, right? The mystery is as as much of a gimmick as the mystery can become. We certainly lose something when it's not there anymore. And I think for reasons like that, it's like why I'm so cued into how is Hox Pox Docs going to wrap up, right? What, what's going? We have all these like mad theories that we're going through for uh, for these books and X Labs now. Because I think so many of us miss the days of the mystery. And now we have one. We don't know what's going to happen next. And I think that's why I think that's why we enjoy and we stick with these books. Uh, as frustrating as they can be sometimes, we stick with them because it's all going to come back around. And we're going to be here. We're going to be theorizing. We're on the ground floor. And we're all experiencing it together. Now, Jeremiah continues. Back to Sabretooth. I think that if this was explored in a what-if scenario or a limited alternate timeline, it could have been somewhat interesting. There could have been some sort of edible tilt to the story that, for whatever reason, Wolverine has to stop Sabretooth from doing something awful, and the only way to stop him would be to kill him. But he learns that he's his father, and now there's guilt about what he has to do. Or maybe Wolverine's berserker rage has gotten the better of him, and he commits some unspeakable act and becomes a pariah to the X-Men. Sabretooth hears about this and confronts Logan, telling him that he's no different from his father, revealing that he is indeed his father, and look at how alike they are. These are cliches and not very original ideas, but I think you get my point. In the hands of a talented writer, the idea could be explored in a what-if story, without committing to the idea to the main continuity and effectively messing up years of good stories. And yeah, I agree. If the story was handled as a shorter what-if subject, a sky's the limit. Could have been a great story. Actually having it bubbling as a subplot in X-Men Forever? Yeah. <laughs> now, there were plenty of ways they could have done this. Pre-Origin, of course. But you never know. We do have that X-Men Legends book coming out in just a few weeks, I think. Where the first arc of that is going to be something to do with the third Summers brother. Which is another one of those rumors right out of my wheelhouse. So, it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere down the line we have some sort of Wolverine Sabretooth deal going on with some sort of family tie. Weirder things have happened, right? So we'll stay tuned for that. But thank you so much, Jeremiah, for uh, for checking out x Nation and for sharing some, uh, some food for thought here. Now we're going to wrap up with a letter from our friend Jesse D. Young, and he is talking all about clones. Now he says, while reading Jody's letter a few episodes ago, you brought up how Shatterstar was not Dazzler's baby. 
In X-Factor, Volume 3, Issue 259, we actually do learn that Shatterstar is Dazzler and Longshot's baby, and not only that, but due to time travel, Shatterstar and Richter are there to deliver baby Shatterstar when Dazzler goes into labor early. It's also revealed that not only is Shatterstar Longshot's baby, but that Longshot is also a slightly altered clone of Shatterstar, making Shatterstar the father of his father and Longshot the clone of his son. Man, I love Peter David. And I think you summed up that story better than I ever could. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm sure we've all read comic stories that make like perfect sense, right? But only while you're reading it. While you're reading it and while you're in the mode, it makes perfect sense. But then you close the issue and you try to actually explain it to somebody else, even someone familiar with the subject matter, and you just become completely lost and babbly. That's how I would be trying to, to describe this Shatterstar Longshot X-Factor clone baby daddy thing. Hell, I, I've been on the air in similar situations trying to explain stories that, in my feeble mind, made sense. But actually trying to convey that information onto other folks? Forget about it. <laughs> I've been on some shows live. That's a scary situation. Uh, Jesse continues. I've also been pondering the cloning clones issues that we have been facing and what came up in Hellions number 3. You'd mentioned something about Laura being a clone of Wolverine, and if I remember correctly, she was actually half a clone, but I may be wrong. So maybe she would pass as being able to go through the resurrection protocols. I think what the Council is taking into account is that they have strict guidelines that, except for Proteus, there are no duplicates of currently living mutants. Since Jean is alive and Madeline's a clone of Jean, it would be redundant to bring her back. But there are others who we can question. And yes, you are right. You are right. I had to confer with the Marvel Wiki for clarification, but Laura technically isn't a clone of Wolverine, but instead a genetic twin. A genetic twin. Hmm. It was apparently revealed during one of like the 5500 Death of Wolverine miniseries that Marvel was cranking out a few years ago that uh, Laura had enough of Sarah Kinney's DNA in her to make it so she's basically the daughter of Wolverine and Sarah. Which, uh, I hate to muddy the waters here, and I don't want to pull a Kurt Busiek during the, the Spider-Man clone saga and ask, what of the skeleton in the smokestack, but... If we're only making it so clones shouldn't be re resurrected, then, uh, what of Joseph? He wasn't a clone of Magneto, but a copy, right? Hmm. Yeah, we're never going to see Joseph again. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, Jesse continues. Gabby is a clone of Laura, so she would she get brought back if she died? The Stepford Cuckoos are all clones of Emma, and at some point they did bring back at least Esme and Sophie, who were dead pre-Hoxpox. Or were they? Then, what about Longshot being a clone of Shatterstar? I think Jean just doesn't want to deal with her husband's ex. Or, is she still married? Because they were married until death, do they part? But they've both died at least twice since they were married, so they are they twice unmarried? Whew, all great questions. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure we were down to only a couple of cuckoos there for a minute. So yeah, in part, the five-in-one was resurrected. I'm not sure how or when, or if it had anything to do with the current day resurrection protocols, but definite food for thought. What happens if Esme or 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 Sophie or or Numa or Dumma, whatever? What did Deadpool call one of them? Bumma? I think Bumma. What if Bumma dies? Is is Bumma gonna get brought back, or is she too clony? Now I want to say that Gabby, a uh, honey badger or scout or whatever the hell they're calling her, she is a clone. 
So it would be interesting to see what happens should she pass away. And Longshot, I mean, that's a weird one, isn't it? I guess the hoodoo with Shatterstar actually makes him kind of a mutant, sort of, right? I don't know, I'm still confused. I, I come from the day and age where Longshot was somebody that we would, all us high and mighty X fans, would always correct people. Because people would say he was a mutant, and we'd be like, uh, 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 no, he's not. No, he's not. But now he is, kind of, right? It was, always a little, it was always Longshot, Juggernaut, and Deadpool. Those were the three that people would be like, oh, those are my favorite mutants. It's like, no, no, those aren't mutants at all. But uh, Longshot might be now. I don't freaking know. Uh, Jesse continues. You may not realize it yet, Chris, but you've started a book club, and I get more excited to hear the feedback and discussions from Damien, Evan, yourself, and so many others than the content of the books themselves. It's awesome to finally have others to talk with about comics without my wife falling asleep while trying to explain the Doc Hawk being the superior Spider-Man storyline. You're just amazing for doing this. Thank you very much, Chris. Man, um, it's a good thing this isn't a video show because I'd have the stupidest smile on my face right now. That that really made me smile. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. I... I mean, I think I've said it before. I, I don't. I never thought anybody would want to engage with this program, but I'm absolutely taken aback by the fact that we have such an awesome little community here, and uh, it it means more to me than I, I than I can adequately put into words. Um, it's just so cool. It is just so cool that we 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 are a you know we are a book club here, and we do share these ideas, and we're sharing these experiences, and soon enough. We're all going to be at the same point, right? When I catch up with the rest of y'all and get through X of Tens, we'll be at, we'll be at the same point. We'll, we'll all be experiencing everything for the first time together. I really can't wait. But uh, this stuff like this really makes this whole project worthwhile here. Um, it's not always easy to, to put together an episode, especially when, like I said, the books sometimes are lacking. Uh, sometimes I feel like these books are... You know, you're supposed to read them the one time, spend 10 minutes with it, put it aside, get to the next one, and instead of doing that, I'm spending an entire day with an issue, which is probably the most backwards way to go about catching up with something. But, uh, no, your, your comments mean so much to me. That, that that's, that's why I keep doing it. I Just knowing that there's going to be folks who want to talk about this stuff is is all the reason I need. So thank you. Thank you all so, so much. Now, uh, Jesse wraps up with, So until we find out that Glob is Maggot's brother from another mother, make mine X lapsed. Stranger things have happened. You never know. Have we seen Maggot? I don't think we've seen Maggot since, uh, since Hawksbox. Eh, maybe one of these days he'll come back. But uh, that is where we're going to leave the mailbag today. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts here. Um, going to the you know, X lapsed nation uh, question, just all these divisive issues that... Maybe I'm being a little too hard on, and and talking about uh, the resurrection protocols here. That's all awesome stuff. Just really, really cool, and it really means a lot to me that uh, that you all want to engage. So thank you, thank you all so much. And if uh, there's anyone out there who would like to be part of the mailbag and part of the show, please feel free to write and reach out. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter, or you can send me an email at weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can check out our little Facebook group and leave all sorts of comments, all sorts of whatever you want. Pop pictures in there. Do your thing. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
And you can listen to all the shows on the Chris and Reggie radio network channel thing that we have at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for episode 107. Probably going to go about 50 minutes this time out, so I guess it's fitting it was a giant-sized issue because it's a somewhat giant-sized episode, which I would like to thank everyone so, so much for sharing with me and sharing your time. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.